Well, welcome to my little dime museum. Can I help you? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to startle you. It's just... These are for display only. Yes, um, so if you would just be so kind as to put it back on its stand. <sighs> Thank you. Oh, I see. The sign fell and broke and moved some of its pieces to the drawer. Again, I have to make a new one just for the time being. I'll put this up for now. Caution. Living objects. Please do not touch. That'll do. I know what you're thinking. And no, haunted isn't the right word. But that's not what you were going to say, is it? Go ahead. Cursed. Hmm, are they cursed? That's a good question. And so I have a question for you. Why'd you pick it up? You just needed to. Had to. Right? You felt compelled. So maybe it's not the machete that you need. Mysterious stranger. But it's story. Because without a doubt, that's the part that's still alive. Yes, I think I should tell you her story. It's a story about how even brave men can be afraid of the dark. And how easily we can find devils and those we don't understand. It's about how hope can wear a mask of danger and how all great revolutions require sacrifice. It was strange how she wore the geography of tyranny on her skin like a corset of whale's bones correcting her shape when it had made no mistake. Unmistakably, she was a woman and yet, and yet, the laces would tighten and smooth her into something more presentable. Whale's bones on her bones pulled tight in resistance and nearly ready to burst at the nexus of nature and civility, that uncomfortable crossroads where the entire island seemed to find itself, walking in circles, gasping for air. Her skin itself was a crossroads, a meeting ground of islands and coastlines that were, she thought, perhaps best kept apart by currents and sea serpents and circles of salt. And yet here she was, the uncomfortable crossroads of Corsica and the savannah, the color of cane sugar when it bubbled and boiled over the heat of sanguine fire. Her name, like her father, came from Europe, Cecile, blind. Her name meant blind, and some days she wished she were. Her mother had not been born on the island, 
and this made her a thing that men believed they could own. They were wrong, of course. Her mother had been born in a land of soft earth and magical beasts and spirits who refused to be mere whispers, but instead danced and sang with strong bodies and forceful voices belonging to the living who knew their names. But her mother's life was interrupted by men who believed she was a thing they could own. They were wrong, of course, but nonetheless, she was taken to a ship. She was taken in chains, and as the great ship with its great hull, teeming with souls, not lost but stolen, made its way across the Atlantic, the spirits followed, and they were here now. She picked up the machete, the machete chopped the cane. It chopped the cane in the hands of her brothers and sisters, and if it stopped, a whip cracked, or a shot fired. So it chopped the cane. No matter how wary the hand it held had become. Because if it stopped, the skin would break. They'd feel the crack, or their body would bear the bullet and stop for good. It was an uncomfortable crossroads, this machete. Chopping the cane kept bodies safe, but chopping the cane was toil that itself broke bodies. And bearing the weight of being a thing that men thought they could own broke hearts and spirits, too. Tonight, though, it would be something entirely different. Tonight, it really would keep them safe and save the people who remember the names of the spirits. Tonight, she would wear flowing white, and the bones she felt would be her own, not some beast trying to force her into a mold. Tonight, her bones and the bones of her ancestors would call out and help people remember the names of the spirits. Not just their names, but their power. She twisted her long, black, straight hair into a coil, wrapping it in a cloth so white and clean it might have covered the Holy Sacrament. Her eyes flashed the same color as the seas that separated her origins, serpentine green. She was ready to meet her people and her fate, whatever it might be. Tonight, they would all see God, and tonight, she would become God. Ngan Bookman and his Hassan would open the door, near the sanguine fire beneath the mapu tree, brick dust the battery, thrum by callous hands, the libration spilled at cardinal points would open the door. The moon and the memory and the song and the urgency would open the door. The machete, the sacrifice, would open the door. The ceremony in the alligator woods, the guacamine, would open the door, open the door, like but would open the door, and Azili Dantor, mother of Haiti, would come through it. Now, Cecile, Mambo Mulatris revolutionary, was away from her body, and Dantor was with her people, the people who remembered her name. The perfect mother with her scarred, sacred face and her broken tongue was with her people. But they understood. It's all she could speak, and yet they understood. And they brought to her the sacrifice that the moment and the mother demanded. And the black 
boar's blood was spilt by the machete that chopped the cane. And in that blood, something was born or remembered. And there in the woods, in the dark of the night, the people found their voice. It was the first of many sacrifices that would be demanded. The island ground would be consecrated in the blood of revolutionaries. The children of Dantor would become the fathers and mothers of the nation, the heroes that defined the country. But here tonight, in the alligator woods, the Bois mean. There was Mambo, and there was Ungan, and there was Sanguine Fire. There were magical beasts and spirits who refused to be mere whispers, but instead they danced and sang with strong bodies and forceful voices belonging to those who knew their names. Have you heard the story of... Welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. And we have done this. One hundred times. One hundred episodes, you people that are still here. My goodness. Look at you. You deserve a merit badge. You do. I think you've lettered in podcast. You're going to need a letter jacket. And we do want to thank everyone for coming for our 100th episode. We're super excited. And, you know, we usually do our affirmations. We do usually do our affirmations, but it's, it's going to be a little bit different today. Because we're doing our Halloween series this month, and we're focusing on curses. And to that end, I have a curse. Because someone wrote us and asked us to curse whoever canceled Two Broke Girls. Yeah, I'm like, oh yeah, whoever cancels your favorite show or reboots your favorite show definitely deserves it. So there are a whole host of Hollywood evils that kind of fall under this umbrella. And so I decided that they all needed to get their comeuppance. So I've prepared an artisanal curse for this situation. To those in the entertainment industry who cannot leave well enough alone. To you who cancel television shows before their time has come. To you who reboot properties that are better just booted. To you who spin out sequels at a pace so quick that we are never able to digest the previous installment and form sincere opinions on whether or not we would actually like a sequel to exist. 
to all of you who must futz with every beloved property just to monetize our nostalgia. So all of Hollywood. (laughs) To all of you. You have brought this upon yourselves. May you be forced to work with the original child actors who were in the properties you insist on rebooting, but in roles that go against type while wearing prosthetics that hide them from the audience. Bad prosthetics. Yes. And may every show you cancel be picked up by Hulu or Netflix and become a cultural phenomenon that is discussed for decades to come. May your name be misspelled in the credits. No, no, no. May another person with your name take up a lucrative porn career and come up above you in Google results forever. Good for them, but not for your mom Googling you. Right? No one's ever going to like find you on LinkedIn. May your earliest screenplays about coming of age and the affair you wish you'd had with your writing professor with all of their annoying cliches, bad jokes, dated conventions, and awkward casting suggestions be leaked on the internet. Sounds like personal experience. No. May the only work that you are able to find be on sex education videos for senior citizens. And may you watch the worst decision of your career played on loop forever while on a treadmill at the gym. Ooh, that's mean. So that's your curse for the week. (laughs) We'll have more to come this month. If you have any suggestions, definitely send them to us. And then we also, for our 100th anniversary having a contest and we are having a only way we can know if you're a listener is to get your name somehow so give us a shout out on twitter social media where you can find us at just a story pod or leave us a review on itunes which is always helpful and we do check for our reviews outside the u.s they don't come up automatically we do see them occasionally but if you're outside the u.s and you leave a review and you want us to know about it screen cap it and like send it to us yeah well i've got a few so leslie m from the uk hi leslie m uh mir missy from australia thanks and small puka from new zealand you're a big puka in my heart Aww. so a few from the u.s gone fishing 73 sweet attitude and colleen 324 all leaving reviews and all getting entered, entered into the magical mystery hat for a t-shirt which we will announce at the end of the month ta-da And in addition to leaving reviews or reaching out to us on our social media platforms, you can visit our website. We have a lovely website where we keep all of the artwork for the episodes and all of our sources and links to various and sundry around the web. That's all at justastorypod.com. And on there, you can also find links to our Patreon page, which is a way that another way other than just leaving reviews and listening, (laughs) which we always appreciate. But if you're able to give some monetary support, we always appreciate that as well. And you'll get some fun rewards such as extra episodes, stickers, etc. And there's one more way to reach out to us. If you feel so inclined, you may dial the Urban Legend Hotline. And that number is 512-222-3375. And you can call to tell us your favorite scary story all about a curse that you put on someone or had put on you. I'll do my best to take it off. And or your favorite jokes or local urban legends or just how you feel about the last episode of Riverdale. Whatever. We may have become addicted. We might have binged the entire first season. <laughs> so since it is our 100th episode, we wanted to do something special. Something spooky. Something that we have been wanting to do since day one, but we knew it would be a humongous time commitment. Yeah, seriously, this was number one on our list when we started making our list, and it has been simmering on a back burner in our 
brains ever since that day. And now we are finally prepared to deliver it for, for your listening and edification and things. So in movies and stories and songs, you have various characters that can curse you. You have witches and gypsies. But a favorite of ours is the voodoo queen. And boy, has voodoo become quite a legend in our modern folklore. Because what you think of when you think of voodoo is pretty much wrong (laughs) as we'll go into it but it's very much a a stereotypical thing that's been invented over the last few centuries yeah i would say that it was systematically invented for consumption of people who did not practice voodoo in its own right like there is the the way in which voodoo came to be what it is today which is its own story and then there's the narrative and the vision of voodoo that was created in almost entertainment or educational, I'm air quoting, purposes. We'll go into some of the reasons it was invented for sure. But they're almost two separate stories. Almost. So voodoo, V-O-O-D-O-O, so far as I can glean, is the like official spelling and preferred pronunciation of nothing. (laughs) Like, no one's like, yeah, that's, that's totally legit. That's the way you do it. I mean, that's how it's spelled a lot in New Orleans. There are several different ways to spell it. In Haiti, it is most commonly V-O-D-O-U, and it's pronounced Vodou. In New Orleans, most of the time, people will spell it V-O-D-O-U-N, Vodoun. Then, there are also people in New Orleans that spell it V-O-U-D-O-U, and then some people do do the V-O-O-D-O-O. I think the most important Part of that is that it, of course, was originally an oral tradition Mm -hmm. of the Creole Patois in Haiti. Right. But the word actually is used in Benin in several parts of Africa to refer to spirit. Right. And so that is where its origins most likely are. And then it has, of course, been transformed with dialects and accents and integrations of new languages and all those wonderful things that we love to talk about as Stories and words move around and forward in time. But there is one important thing you do need to know. Voodoo is not hoodoo. 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 You do. It's the bad voodoo. You're not going to do that with me? No. You remind (laughs) me of the babe. The babe with the power? The power of the hoodoo. Hoodoo. You do. Voodoo? You do. You remind me of the babe. We need puppets. Yes. For our podcast. We have puppets. Yes. Don't you see them? (laughs) So hoodoo is, as best can be explained, in one breath. You're going to explain something in one breath? No, never. Southern folk magic. Conjuring. Right. And it has to do with like root work and traiteurs and traditional healing and charms and that kind of stuff. And it is more integrated into the practice of voodoo in New Orleans than it is in Haiti. So let's go to the origins of it. Let's go. And so a lot of people try to trace it back to Africa. In some ways, that's valid. It definitely is. And so it does have its origins in traditional African religions. Absolutely. But it very much became its own when it came to Haiti uh, with the enslaved people brought there from West Africa. So the first mention of voodoo as it pertains to kind of the Western Hemisphere was in Moreau 
de Saint-Marie's description of the Isle of Saint-Dominique. So according to Saint-Marie, voodoo signifies an omnipotent and omniscient being who exists in the form of a non-venomous snake, revealing himself only through the medium of a priest or priestess. Now at the meeting of the sect, which are always held at night and in private, the ceremonies consist of a solemn oath of secrecy or exhortation on the part of the priest and of prayer to the divine snake who is kept in a box. These rites are followed by a dance called the dance vodou. Finally, the king and queen go into a delirious condition intensified by abundance of strong drink. They alternate between spinning around in the dance and feigning fits and the evening is concluded with a debauch in an adjacent chamber. Now, when this was published, it was already out of date because he was writing it for the French colonial government to mm-hmm. kind of understand Haiti, and there's a lot more in the book. <laughs> but it was published after the Haitian Revolution, Insurrection. Revolt. Revolt. So, legend has it. Several legends have it several different ways, but mostly legend in general has it. That the uprising began in the forest in 1791. And these, this forest was known as the Alligator Woods, or the Bois Camin. And this became a symbol of resistance that led to an independent nation of Haiti being able to lead a successful revolution against their French colonial oppressors. It was a secret gathering of enslaved people living on the island. They are mostly Creole, which means... People born on the island. Correct. And this happened at night in the woods. It's very spooky. But it's become this, like, icon, this religious and political event that has incredible significance to the historical narrative. And so, according to most accounts, Ngan Duddy Bookman was there with Mambo Marinette, who is also known as Cecile Fatiman, and she was mounted or possessed by the spirit of Azili Dantor, Petroloa and the mother of Haiti. Now, as they're conducting the ceremony, they bring in a black Creole pig, and the pig is sacrificed. Now, some accounts say that they drank his blood. Oh, no. Some accounts say that they wrote a pact out in his blood. Okay, that's kind of cool. Yeah, (laughs) but most agree that there was something done with the black Creole pig's blood. And at this moment, it is said that an oath was sworn, and a prayer was prayed, and a song was sung, and that the island was swept over with the spirit of revolution and a hunger for liberation that would give the people of Haiti the strength that they would acquire as they battled to become an independent nation. Now, this has been co-opted and used by every agenda imaginable. Oh, yes. And taken on every different tone you could possibly think of. And there are, you know, some tangible political motives for revolution outside of the spirit realm that we can talk about for a minute. Right, and so... St. Dominique was France's prized colony. It was the Pearl of the Antilles. Now, there were 40,000 white planters. There were 700,000 slaves. And there were 40,000 free people of color. Now, slaves were first brought to the island very, very much at the beginning in 1512. And they had sugar plantations and several other plantations. And they were making a ton of money. Bank. For the king in Versailles. Of course, enslaved people outnumbered their European masters by significant figures. At around the time before this revolution, you have the French Revolution and the American Revolution. So the spirit of revolution was palpable. 
And things just kept getting worse and worse on the island. Slaves were being treated more and more harshly as they were pushed to produce more and more. You had alliances between free people of color and the planters. And also a rigid caste system was put in place. This was not just a like unspoken thing. It was actually Mm -mm. written out Mm -hmm. in detail and it went down to classifying how people should be handled and treated and what station should be afforded them for every fraction of African blood that they had going so far as one one hundredth and twenty eighth. Right. That was proposed by the same writer. It's hard to say if it was ever implemented, but without a doubt, there was the rich white people. There was the poor white people. And then there were the free people of color. And then there were the enslaved people. And so you get that rigid caste system that builds a lot of tension. And resentment between everyone. Everyone. So one French historian, Paul Fergusi, wrote, Whites, mulattoes, and blacks loathed each other. The poor whites couldn't stand the rich whites. The rich whites despised the poor whites. The middle-class whites were jealous of the aristocratic whites. The whites born in France looked down upon the locally born whites. Mulattoes envied the whites, despised the blacks, and were despised by the whites. Free Negroes brutalized those who were still slaves. Haitian-born blacks regarded those from Africa as savages. And everyone quite rightly lived in terror of everyone else. Haiti was hell. But Haiti was rich. I'm really glad that I don't have to worry about being on Haiti in 1791. <laughs> it sounds terrible. Well, or familiar. I can't decide. I know. The, the milieu of crap going on it sounds so familiar to other wars and revolts. But at the time, you know, you did have slaves that were running away and escaping and creating their own communities. In the forest. And these were known as maroon settlements. Yes. And and they were actually semi-sanctioned in a way. They were allowed to exist because the owners thought that if let the bad ones out, let the ones that are going to cause trouble go away and we can keep everyone else here and also keep them as kind of a boogeyman too. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I was reading and researching this episode And one of the things that came up is that if you sold a person, which first of all, you're selling a person, but you had to just like make a disclaimer if they'd ever tried to run away or giving you any trouble. It's like there was a huge fear of revolt from every single group. Now, people, like I said, have taken that Wakamine ceremony and questioned, like, did it ever really happen? Did it really have anything to do with voodoo? What was that about? And so a lot of historians, you know, for a while were skeptical that it had anything to do with what we know as voodoo today. But there was a long history on the island of some at least traditional African religious practices that give us a reason to give some credence to that It definitely could be. So I wanted to talk about some early voodoo practitioners on the island and also some revolutionaries. First of all, let's talk about Makandal. He was an effective maroon leader. So an escaped slave. Mm -hmm. But he was very charismatic, and he was interested in organizing and unifying a black resistance movement. Now, unfortunately, he was executed in 1758. He was allegedly a skilled poisoner, and he was kind of a mythic figure already by the time of the revolution. Now, allegedly, he distributed his poison in paquettes. What's a paquette? Okay. It's like a mojo bag. (laughs) 
It's like a little bag. Right, but you keep like charms and it's got like a, a mystical element to it. A spiritual element. Mm-hmm. And he did this mostly around the northern plantations. Now, supposedly, he had a plan to eliminate all the white people from the island. That's a scary story. Mm-hmm. Some boogeyman in the woods. Right. And he would come and bring the enslaved people packets full of poison to take out the white people. Yes. Terrifying if you're a white people, I guess. I would be. Now, most sources agree that he is African, like he was brought to the island, and they think he was possibly Bantu. But it seems like instead of Paquette's being called after him, because sometimes they're referred to as Makandals, he took his name from them, because the Congo word, Makwanda, is a name for amulets. Interesting. We'll kind of keep seeing that. And he inspired his people by drawing on African traditions and religions, and he united maroon bands and established a network of secret organizations among plantation slaves, leading a rebellion from 1751 through 1757. There were lots of rebellions. Mm-hmm. And he was eventually captured, and as I said, he was executed in 1758 by being burned at the stake. A witch. And large armed bands persisted even after his death. Yeah, he established the network. He kind of established that idea, like, we can unite. We can have, you know, form raiding parties. We can help those that are still on the inside, and they can help us. So the next person we're going to talk about is Jerome Patu. And he was indicted in 1786 for presiding over nighttime gatherings which were said to give attendees protection from punishment at the hands of their masters. Now, these are normally referred to as mayomba or bila in the records from the time. And leaders of these ceremonies demanded that the participants observe secrecy in regard to what went on at the gatherings. Well, they probably punished, right? Right. But then, it, I mean, think about that. It gives it another air of yeah. mystery. Mm-hmm. These were mostly tolerated by planters, but broken up if they became too noisy And despite the vow of secrecy that some people had taken, or that everyone had supposedly taken, a few people did give depositions. So we have a pretty good record of some of the things that went on with Jerome Patu. Now, he sold manmanbira, which are chalky stones, and fonda, which were the little bags to keep them in, and podo, which were red and black acacia seeds, which were used to detect chicken thieves. Or, that sounds handy. I know. Chicken wrestlers. Or mockendal, like if you were going to be poisoned. Uh, so you, also handy. Yeah. I bet some of the owners were like, can I get some of those seeds, man? <laughs> and he was like, no. no. He's like, yeah, sure. Here you go. I have some seeds. Just eat a few. By far his best seller, though, were the mayombo, which were sticks, which were placed in Manmanbila using a drill and said to protect the owner in battle. And these might be ornamented with nails. And if so, they were worth even more. These could be put in gunpowder and rum to make them angry or paired with pepper and white powder to cure fevers. They had a variety of uses. Those are handy. Mm-hmm. Now, in the depositions from a few of the attendees, some of them do mention like fetish worship and altars with crossed candles, which today you can still see in Haitian voodoo, but it's usually machetes that are right. there. Yeah. Now, other people mention drinking rum and chalk. And seeing others who'd done so falling out into fits and being revived with blows from the machete. And several mention leaves being passed out among practitioners, which is a fawn practice. Like you see that in Benin still today. And so Jerome was not executed. Really? He was not. He was basically like put in the stocks for a bit and his accomplice was pilloried. Oh, God. But... They were not actually executed. So some people question whether or not he was a true revolutionary figure 
or if he was just someone that wanted there to be more of a sense of community among those of African descent on the island. So he's interesting, and we get a look at kind of some of the early practices that were going on. Yeah, a lot of the things you still see today. But then, unfortunately, people in power realized that the African religions had some ability to inspire fear. And so they recruited their own voodoo priest. Really? Yes. And his name was Hyacinth Ducodre. And he, this took place around 1792. So right after the Boacamine ceremony, when this is all bubbling. When voodoo created the revolution. And he was a young voodoo priest. And he was probably a household domestic from a sugar plantation owned by the Ducodre family. That's his last name. He led a group of men into battle at Port-au-Prince, waving a bull's tail like a whip and screaming to his men that the enemy's bullets were water. Holy shit, that's creepy. It's fucking that's badass. badass. <laughs> and there's also an episode that was recorded where a group of men were refusing to work cutting cane, which is miserable work. I would refuse to. They told Hyacinth's gendarmerie that they were going to shoot them. And a few of them actually started firing at them. Him and his, like, gang overseers. So he charged at them. And alone, he killed ten of them. That's probably a story. (laughs) I don't know why it would be. It makes him sound awesome. I know. Well, maybe. He did retain this, this power in the imaginations of a lot of people, though. Because, like, once one of his gendarmes was arrested. And he mobilized several thousand men who were enslaved at the time from plantations to march on Port-au-Prince and demand his release. And he got it. Turncoat. (laughs) Right? He was just working every angle. He was a champion of free men of color and was less inclined to help those who were still enslaved. His participation in voodoo is pretty well documented historically. And he was known for his clairvoyance and his powerful conjures. His clairvoyance was used by anyone who could get an audience. You know, there are records of him, like, making predictions kind of at white men, like negative predictions at white men, negative predictions at slave, like anybody. like He's dishing it out to everyone. Yeah, and people would pay him to go give these like negative pronouncements and stuff. It was, he was interesting. So what happened to him? Well, he was eventually executed for doing the worst thing that one could possibly do to the French. Did he steal their cheese? He proposed an alliance with the British. Worse. You're right. It is worse. And then in his story, we run into a man named Hainos de Joncourt. Who's that? He was a white planter. And a lot of people whispered that he had been initiated into the rites of Vaudun. Now, most of the people who whispered this were his enemies. That makes sense. But it was kind of believed. And he didn't put the rumors out either. And reportedly, a lot of the black people on the island called him the white man who knows everything. <gasps> St. Germain. That's I kind of thought that. At another revolt, another revolution. I know. Hmm. Hmm. All the pieces are coming together. (laughs) But yeah, I just included him because he reminded me of St. Germain. And then there is a revolutionary figure named Jeannot. He was one of the leaders that was said to be prophesied by Bookman. You'll remember him from the Boacamine ceremony. Butchered the Creole pig. He was Ungan at the Boacamine ceremony. He had been prophesied to lead the revolution along with George Biasu. And Jean-Francois. And according to accounts from the time, he was a small, thin man with a forbidding manner that veiled a crafty face. He was utterly remorseless, even toward his own kind. He would stop at nothing to gain his own ends. He was daring, 
seizing quickly on chances, quick-witted, and capable of total hypocrisy. He feared no one and nothing. Unfortunately, he found inspiration in cruelty, a sadist without the refinements that so-called civilization brings. So-called. And another contemporary account says, He hanged those he captured by hooks, stuck under their chins. He himself put out their eyes with red-hot pinchers. He cut the throat of a prisoner and lapped the blood as it flowed, encouraging those around him to join him. Ah, my friends, how sweet is the blood of the whites. Drink it deep and swear revenge against our oppressors. Never peace, never surrender. I swear by God. And you may think that this sounds very ginned up and like people trying to make somebody real scary. Yeah, definitely. But he was actually executed by a co-revolutionary because he was so cruel. Oh, Jean-Francois oh, wow. captured... See, I thought he was just... It was just ginning it up, yeah. I mean, it could be exaggerated. I don't know if he said the thing about the whites, but he probably was being very openly sadistic, trying to inspire fear, because that seems to be a thing that works. Works pretty well. But his fellow revolutionary, Jean-Francois, another one of the three that had been prophesied by Buchmann to lead the revolution, eventually did capture him. He put him on trial and he was executed. So it wasn't just like he walked up to him and was like, enough of you, and got rid of him. He actually went through the process of a trial. Now, some people think he was involved with voodoo. Is there any evidence for that? It's hard to say because that's so, like, even then people were like, maybe. Well, it's like he probably was in some ways. Was that, like, his main driving force? No, I think he was just a sadist. Yeah. But you can mad. see how this, like, starts to make it scary. Yeah, I mean, voodoo continues to be used, and we'll see, to make these revolutionaries even more terrifying. And the last two people we've got to talk about are Duddy Buchmann, who was the Ungan at the ceremony. And Ungan's a priest. Correct. Most people agree that he is African, um, and some people say that he is Islamic, like, or Hmm. from an Islamic country, because he was a man of the book, bookman, and that oh, has that's, that's conjecture where no one's real sure on that. He did exist. Historical records do indicate that from very early on, he was described as like a priest, king, ungan in accounts. It seems like he was definitely trying to organize people of color on the island to have a more communal nature because you have to remember these people are coming from all over the continent of Africa. It is not just like oh, we were friends over there and now we're friends over here. You know, they're all having to get to know one another here or two. <laughs> but you know, caveat to that, a lot of them are from a specific areas in Africa. Well, there are really three major areas represented. There's the Congo, which is more central. And then there is the Benin area. And then you have some Yorba influence as well. Really in Haiti, that's kind of the demographic breakdown but it seems like he really was trying to unite all of these people around a common cause historically we know he existed and it seems like he really was a high-ranking religious official and then also at that ceremony is mambo marinette or cecile fataman and supposedly she was the daughter of an african-born enslaved woman and a white planter from corsica It said that she was very light-skinned with bright eyes and long, silky hair. And she supposedly gave the blood to the attendees to drink and seal their fates in loyalty to the cause of liberation of Saint-Dominique. Ah, and they also said that she took the blood of people as well. Human sacrifice. Uh Uh-huh. 
I'm, char- I'm charmed by this. You can tell. It, it is a charm. Oh. <laughs> No, but I mean, you see that you see those stories from this time period where they are very much vilifying things and you know making it scary. You know, adding in human sacrifice, human blood, and you really see it with the chants that they say they did at the ceremony. So the chant that is taken down and associated with the ceremony and associated with the Haitian Revolution comes from our friend Moro de Saint Marie. You're gonna try to read this. <laughs> I am going to try. It is written phonetically. Correct. <laughs> so it says A A Bamba Hin Hin A A Mumba A A Kanga Bafiote Kanga Bafioti Kanga Monye de la Kanga Mundele Kanga Dokila Kanga Ndoke Kanga Li Kanga. So did he translate that for us from I'm sure fifth hand accounts? Yes. So this is written phonetically. And it is often paired with another chant, which is I a bambia bambe a ya mamba aye ye mambia lama samana quana lamba soyana quana evant vanta vana doki ewo vanda vuna ndoki. Good job. I sounded damn near fluent in this language that they have never it's identified. Probably pretty much made up by him. But so these are the two chants. That are most commonly associated with the revolution, especially in the early days. But what does he say it translates to? So, you may not believe this. Peace to all. People debate. <laughs> no way. People debate. So, the first translation we get using the transcription is by C.L.R. James, and he says that what I just read you translates to, We swear to destroy all whites, all they possess. Let us die rather than fail to keep this vow. Did he cite his sources? He did not. And then some people are like, it just means liberty or death, because apparently Patrick Henry was moonlighting in Haiti. It's just as believable. Then Jean Cuvier claims that it translates to, Oh, Mamba Snake, stop the blacks, stop the whites, stop the Indoki, the witches or sorcerers, stop them. Okay. Sure. <laughs> I have less trouble believing that. It seems like there's not enough words. There are. I counted. This actually makes the most sense. And he is a Congo scholar, and he believes that this is Congo, and people originally ignored that because the photo tradition is more heavily associated today in the imagination with people from Benin or Yoruba or Fon-speaking people. Right. Mm-hmm. But there are some Congo elements. Oh, Definitely. And so he first proposed this using some of his knowledge of that linguistic system. Now, later, our bourgeois says, "Mm -mm -mm, why would they want to stop the blacks? That's just silly. All the blacks got along, which we know is not true. And he does not know about the mamba snake or the mumba snake. Doesn't think there's anything to do with that. And so he says, oh, beneficent spirit, open up the minds of the blacks, exterminate the whites, exterminate the sorcerers. Which, to caution him, because if he thinks that it doesn't make sense for the black people to want to stop the black people, then it really shouldn't make sense for the sorcerers to want to stop the sorcerers. That's what I kept thinking. Like, aren't they the, quote, sorcerers? Right. But this is, like, the root of the stories. Right. It's like, kill the whites, destroy all they possess, do this or die. Even in future writings about voodoo in this area, St. Marie is pretty much the source people use. He did not provide that translation, I will say. He was just like, they said this, I think. 
Yeah, but I mean, like the like the story I told earlier mm-hmm. and his other descriptions of the island. That was like the reference point. That was the citation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was their source. Now, a few things have been proposed about this. Some people say maybe these are disparate and different African religions being practiced by people whose ancestors came from specific parts of Africa. And the white people who wrote it down were just so clueless that they didn't know it was different and they just called it all voodoo. Yeah. Would not have a problem believing that. (laughs) But I actually don't think that's the case. Or it's just, you know, them invoking Satan against all the white people. Right. We can interpret the word voodoo actually as meaning shit white people don't understand that makes them real nervous. Don't make the white folks nervous, (laughs) y'all. But I think that despite however clueless they may have been, these spies, and they were definitely spying, they were definitely not invited to be there and record this, were actually chronicling something really amazing happening. This is kind of this moment when people started to bring together these traditions and find common ground and build something new that would become Haitian voodoo. Yeah, a new religion is literally being created. It's not being created whole cloth, though. And I think that that is important because the African roots mean a lot to the people who practice it. What religion is created whole cloth? Flying spaghetti monster. Exactly. (laughs) Even that, they use the Vatican imagery. So one of the lower we're going to talk about later is Dambala. And another one is Aido Wedo. And these are the serpent deity and the rainbow deity. And there is a very widespread tradition in Africa of sort of seeing these two things as divine. And some people conjecture that even the different people coming together from different nations that would have been represented by different colors found the symbol of a rainbow, this unification. Oh, interesting. As, you know, a symbolic sign, I guess, as a sign that they should join together and that they were more powerful together. And so because of these two common deities that are widespread... It may have given them a building block, some common ground to start to come together and work as a cohesive unit and ultimately make a revolution. Revolution. So we won't go through all of the Haitian revolution. We could. Oh, it would be several hours. You'd be here a while because it took a long time. It did. But finally, on January 1st of 1804, Dessalines, the new leader under the dictatorial 1805 constitution, declared Haiti a free republic in the name of the Haitian people. Now, Haiti was the first independent nation in Latin America, the first post-colonial independent black-led nation in the world, and the only nation whose independence was gained as part of a successful slave rebellion. Now, after that, they did go and massacre Pretty much all of the remaining whites on this island. Except the Polish. They did, because they were brought in by the French to help, and they um, said, no, <laughs> you're jackasses. And, and switched sides. And switched like, sides, yeah. and helped the uh, slave revolt, actually. So they were yeah, they were allowed, and some widows were like allowed to keep their stuff, uh, but pretty much everyone else was slaughtered. <laughs> it actually didn't turn out too great for the ex-slaves as well, um, because they were kept in basically like a serfdom kind of system for several years they tried to make it look nicer the leaders so instead of a slave economy they have a feudal system yeah like are they actually building castles and stuff well they kind of (laughs) most people are are separated into either laborers or soldiers Mm. and they're forced to work they do shorten the days a little that's nice and they ban the whip oh but eventually another revolt 
stops that. <laughs> so during the revolts, many people left, fleeing to the U.S., especially South Louisiana. Because they spoke French. Right. And now in Louisiana, many Southern planters were very concerned about the presence of these slaves who had witnessed the revolution in Haiti, worrying that this would ignite similar revolts in the United States. Wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me that they made white people nervous? Um, there was the largest slave revolution in South Louisiana after that. But for next episode. <laughs> so voodoo, from the get-go, gets a bad rap. Right. It is used from the very beginning as a tool to separate out people, but also to bring about fear and reason we should be afraid of these other people. I'm shocked. Some people were, like, aware that it was being used as a, like, fear button, too. Oh, right. So, an English writer, J. Freud, wrote in 1888, Behind the immortality, behind the religiosity, there lies the horrible revival of the West African superstitions, the serpent worship, the child sacrifice, and the cannibalism. There's no room to doubt it. A missionary assured me that an instance of it occurred only a year ago, within his own personal knowledge... The facts are notorious. A full account was published in one of the local newspapers, and the only result was that the president imprisoned the editor for exposing his country. A few years ago, persons guilty of these infamies were tried and punished. Now they are left alone, because to prosecute and convict them would be to acknowledge the truth of the indictment. Okay, so that guy is, like, all about some fear-mongering, clearly. He's on board. So just a few years later in 1884, the British minister to Haiti wrote in his book, Haiti or the Black Republic, a chapter entitled Voodoo Worship and Cannibalism. Okay. Now, in the very, very first issue of the American Folklore Society's journal, there is an article entitled Voodoo Worship and Child Sacrifice in Haiti. What? Now, Even the folklorists are believing oh, this shit? The, not really. Oh, well. And, <laughs> and actually, it's really interesting because he says in 1888... That actually, Haitian voodoo is derived from European sources and European sorcery. Uh-huh. Yeah, this guy's getting no clue. And he said that the alleged sect and its supposed rites have, in all probability, no real existence, but are a product of popular imagination. Okay, he's wrong. Boy, was he wrong. He's wrong, but he's like, I appreciate his skepticism because it has been so overly demonized in the press already like it's already so sensationalized like the child sacrifice and the you know all of that he's going i come on guys <laughs> like, like this is too crazy so the next year bf wyden the first minute of the u.s to haiti confirmed the quote existence of voodoo worship and dance which later he had frequently seen and heard so hubron who is a haitian researcher said that Blacks deported from Africa devise their own religion through the rites of voodoo. Now, this is a radical fantasy at the same time as it is a real community link that will constitute the clandestine cornerstone of their various struggles for freedom. Kind of think we're getting warmer. Definitely warmer. He's a modern day Haitian. Okay. And he's just bringing up that there is this long history of the demonization of it but really it was this fantastical religion that was created and helped unify people and helped with the 
struggles and the revolts, even if it wasn't through a magical way. So let's talk about what real voodoo is. (laughs) So I think it's important to note before we dig into this that voodoo is very amorphous. It's subjective and it is based on individual experience and interaction. And therefore, it is really hard to codify and it's hard to draw neat, tidy boxes around anything. It's what's true for one practitioner will not be true for the next, but they're both true. (laughs) It's true to the people that are practicing it. And it's different for everyone. So let's go through some basics. So we talked about the Ugon and the Mambo. Right. And that's your priest and priestess. People who practice voodoo are called voodoo essence. And the Mambo is called Maman in Haiti. And the Ungan is called Papa. I love that. It's like father. Mm -hmm. Mambo and Ungan, generally, when they become ordained, if we're going to use, let's use Catholic parlance to get as close as we can to this. I just feel better about it. Well, it isn't that far off. Uh, They agree to work only for good. Now, in Haiti, that idea of good and bad is a little more fluid. (laughs) And so if you were to work a little of that bad kind of negative side, I hate hate when people say it's like evil magic or like dark magic. It's just like a little on the the other end of the spectrum. (laughs) You're said to servir à demain, meaning to serve with both hands. There's more of a distinction drawn in Haiti than there is in New Orleans, for reference. Now, let's talk about some of the articles that go along with our mambo and our ungan. First is the asan, which is a ritual rattle. And to take the asan or to be given the asan is to accept your role and go through the process of becoming a mambo or an ungan, which is quite daunting, I must say. The instrument used by the priest is called a calibosier courant, which is a solid natural gourd. And it represents perfection. It's this joined circle with a wand. Right, and you'll see this used in African and Caribbean music, like a, a version of it, I should say. Right, and that is a calibosier ordinaire. Right, and it's like it's like a hollow gourd with kind of a net over it, and there's like shells. And the difference between the two is that one is natural and it's solid, informed that way and one is like a round gourd with a hole poked in it and a handle put in inside they have stones and snake vertebra mm-hmm. a little power there mm-hmm. and so whenever it makes a sound the voices of the ancestors are speaking as represented by the stones and it's also sacred and linked to dumbala because of the snake and then they also use a bell which is a clochette and the perfect version of africa that astral version of Africa that is where like the Loa hang out when they're not in communion with them or where you go to receive the Asan. Your astral plane, if you will, is Afrique Guinea. And then a lay attendant or an apprentice to the priest and priestess is called a Honsi. It's your interns. Yeah, they're basically interns. They do the shit work. <laughs> it's not shit work. <laughs> it's important work. That's what they tell the interns. <laughs> Get my coffee. A bokar or a boko is someone who performs spiritual work for money, works with both hands, and gets into some of the more sketch magic. Sketch. That's the ones you don't want to make angry. Right. Or you don't want to make someone angry and they go to them. <laughs> you don't want to make any of these people angry. <laughs> and then the spirits in Vodou are referred to as Loa. We'll get there. Hold your spirits. <laughs> 
So they also have a sacred tree, the mapu, which is a silk cotton tree. And I wonder if those were the leaves they were handing out. I'm not certain. We need a time machine. But this was actually considered sacred by the Teano people, the natives to the area. Indigenous people. Yes, yes. And also to the Mayans, who felt it secured the axis of the world and that the dead climbed it to travel between various celestial planes. Now, trees are very important to the voodoo traditions and at many crossroads and many cemeteries. At the foot of an imposing tree, you can see a roga, which is kind of like a magical object. Now, these trees are especially powerful because they're at a crossroads. Mm-hmm. And also, if they're in cemeteries and they're very old trees, they're very powerful because they've literally grown from absorbing the essence of the cemetery. Yes, the people, the people buried there. Mm-hmm. And so these roga are targeting specific individuals. And when you pass by it, you just know that it's for you. Hmm. Is it that feeling that someone's looking at you? All right. Somebody's giving you that, that look. And so, you know, if you feel that and you see it, you've got to go to an Ugan and try to figure out a way to take this off. Okay. So this is like a charm. This is like a... Yeah. Here you can also find the dolls. What dolls? Like voodoo dolls? Voodoo dolls. On these trees. Yeah. One anthropologist described it just perfectly, Chalier. He said... The bark nearly disappears behind the multitude of magical objects nailed to the trunk. For dolls, it's generally at the level of the heart, the head, or the pelvis. And when the nail rusts, the dolls fall from the trees and scatter on top of the neighboring graves and in the pathways. It's as if it were raining voodoo dolls. That's not haunting at all. Yeah. So he describes them, you know, they can be black or red, kind of a silhouette of a human um, stitched on the side. On the head and the pelvis are attached hairs from the target. Malefactor. (laughs) Sure. You have single dolls for separate fates, such as illness, death, loss of a trial, accident, etc. Sometimes you'll have double dolls wrapped with wire or a padlock, and these are usually black or white. And they're for love or a spell that goes for more than one person. Like you're trying to... Link those two people in some way. Yeah. And he he actually took some of them with him back. Oh my god, dude, terrible idea. He had them deactivated first. Okay, he's actually got a brain, we'll let him yes. stay. But he took them back to France and x-rayed them. And he found nothing and, and it's fine and we can all sleep. Found all sort of objects and bones and buttons uh, and teeth. I bet things like teeth. that. It's like a tumor. <laughs> Within them. I wouldn't have taken them. You would we, No. I would have made you have them deactivated no. if it caught it if you got that thing. I wouldn't even though I'd taken a picture, maybe. And I would have like left a few coins. <laughs> like somebody took the picture. Well, it's important. So it's an important thing in voodoo is that everything is a give and take. It's very transactional. And so that's one reason serving with both hands is a big deal because you're taking things from less beneficent spirits mm. and they might want more in return. It's and that it's a risky transaction. Because they might want more than you want to give. Right. And it's very expensive to do those things. So let's come back. Let's leave our tree. I thought you didn't want to be here. I, like, I, you were... I don't want to take anything from it. I like my creepy dead person tree. I like your creepy dead person tree too. We can hang out a while. Want to hang out a while? Nah. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I'm good. All right, so let's go back. We've met our priest, our priestess, our mambo, our ungan. We've talked about our creepy dead person tree, which is awesome. So are we going to sacrifice some children? We're never going to sacrifice Ah, children. I'm so sorry. 
I'm so sorry. I know you were looking forward to that. Not really. <laughs> but let's like assemble our peristyle. Let's assemble our house of worship, if you will. And so it's called a peristyle. Yes, it is. It is an open-sided building. Like it's very open air. It's adjacent to an altar chamber. And most public ceremonies are held here. Now, an important article within the peristyle is the central post. And it's usually called a potu legba or potu metan. And it's generally the central post of the temple. And the top is linked to the sky. And the bottom is linked to kind of like hell. Life belongs between. It's a very symbolic central point. This is the post to which animals are bound before sacrifice. And so it is an important point that they do sacrifice animals in many of their rituals. And I will just say, one of my favorite FAQs I came across as I was doing my research on this was on the Mamawati's website. And one of the questions was like, I'm a vegan. I think it's wrong to kill animals. Is this religion not for me? And the answer is just like, nope. Nope. Mm -mm. (laughs) Yeah, I can't. No, sacrificing tofu goats does not do it. Sorry. Sorry. But this is also where the altars are set up. The center post of the peristyle is the point at which most public ceremonies in Vodou will revolve or begin. And it is a sacred part of Legba. The post has a tradition that is much older than the peristyle itself. It corresponds to the post or mound traditionally set up outside houses in Domi in Africa as a sacred symbol of Legba. The center post of a peristyle is customarily painted with bright colors and it's surrounded by a step which will serve as the altar. And then there's the enfer, which is the inner sanctuary or the altar room. But sometimes that can refer to kind of the whole area. Mm-hmm. Just kind of well. a sacred space. Also very important to public ceremonies is the batterie. So what's that? That's the rhythm. Right, right. And it can be any kind of percussion. It's usually the, a song or clapping of hands. And it can incorporate drums. Usually incorporates drums, but they're optional. And so different ceremonies and purposes will have different batteries or rhythms. And there are different people charged with different percussion instruments within the battery, and it is a very interesting, elaborate, and precise. Everybody has their role. Yes, very much. And that's true for all of this. So let's say there's going to be a voodoo ceremony, just a general one, to not generalize too much, but just a general ceremony. What are the things we'd see? We'd have the ugan or mambo. Usually both. And all of the participants, mm-hmm. along with their interns, and usually dressed in all white. It depends. Sometimes the Ugans or Mambos are dressed in bright colors. And sometimes they, everyone will dress in a bright color. It just depends on like what loa you're looking for or what the purpose of that designated ceremony is. Right. And so we're at the Enfor, around the peristyle, there is music and chanting and percussive instruments. So what are, what are we seeing? What else we got? Well, someone, usually Mambo or Unga, will usually draw a veve on the floor. A veve. A veve. I like to say veve. I do too. It makes me feel pretty in a weird way. Well, they're, they're beautiful <laughs> designs. They really are. They're very intricate. And they're ceremonial. And they're usually rendered in chalk powder or dust on the floor. So it's not like drawn with a piece of chalk. Almost like a sand painting. And each of these veves has its own ceremonial purpose and corresponds to usually a loa that is being invoked. So very, very specific to what you're trying to do. Right. And they're geometric kind of line drawings with 
some organic elaborations. And there are traditional elements that you'll see over and over again, but a lot of times they do reflect kind of an artistic talent of the person rendering them. They have, you know, each one is very unique and individual, even though it will incorporate some set iconography. And then if there's going to be a sacrifice, if this is a majloa and not a manchsex, the sacrifice must be oriented or brought to the four corners. Usually it's swung to the four cardinal directions. You can also see like this done with libations. Mm-hmm. We talked about that, I don't know, long time ago. <laughs> Another episode of uh, African tradition, but also used in Haiti and in all of voodoo practicing. You're like kind of swinging libations to the four corners, mm-hmm. the compasses. And one very sassy blogger who's recounting I was reading was like, obviously this is only done with small sacrifices. For example, bulls are not oriented. And it, <laughs> like I could read like, you dumbass, <laughs> in parentheses. And if it's made of tofu, it doesn't count. <sighs> People. Amaj loa is the feeding of the loa, and that's where a traditional sacrifice would be done. It's any ceremony at which offerings are made. So amaj sac can be different ways. It's a ceremony without a sacrifice done. Like an animal sacrifice, yeah, right. specifically. And so it's usually with like food, mm-hmm. other offerings. And it's also can be seen as like a form of charity because they'll go out and perform these ceremonies like at a cemetery. Mm-hmm. And they'll have food and drink and everyone that walks by, no matter who you are, if you're a practitioner, participant, anything, you're offered food. I mean, that sounds great to me. Yeah, so it's a great kind of charitable act as well for mm-hmm. the community and brings the community together. And there are certain loa that like that, like the charity aspect of it. And so they that is more associated with them. And so one interesting thing that you'll usually see at these big ceremonies is the riding. Or the mounting. Or as you will see it put everywhere because we need to use this word and make it scary. Possession. Now, even some practitioners will use the word possession. Right. I think it has such like a specific and negative connotation. I don't know if that's just your Catholic bells activating. Or my Western. Yeah. Yeah. Just like growing up watching The Exorcist and all of those kind of things. I mean, I think most people, when they think of possession, they think of a bad thing. Right. They think of a demon coming and taking you and you're going to, you know, spit pea soup and scream, your mother sucks cocks in hell. But you're not. That won't happen. Well, my. Well, mm, depends <laughs> on who it is. But not all the time. So this is called riding or mounting. This is a sort of integral part of voodoo. It's a characteristic form of manifestation of the loa. It's a deep and complete version of a spiritualist trance. And I think of it when I've seen it, it's almost like watching like a, a trance medium or a physical medium work, like where they are just completely absent and their body is inhabited by something else. It's not violent per se. I don't know about that. <laughs> it depends on who it is. And when we say who it is, we mean when Loa shows up. So whenever you're writing, the Loa will kind of chase away part of the person's spirit. And this kind of leaves room for the Loa to take over for a short period of time. Voodooists say that during this trance, they are the Loa. Right. They don't remember what happened, anything. They have to be told what happened. So one practitioner described it like this. The abrupt departure of the soul causes shudders and spasms. After that part of the soul has left the person, he experiences a feeling of complete emptiness, as if he were losing consciousness. He then not only becomes the receptacle of God, but the instrument. The relationship that exists between the loa and the man is equivalent to the one that connects the harsh mount 
and the writer. And so the person who is in trance or in possession is called a cheval. A horse. (laughs) And that's why we say it is riding or being mounted by loa or spirit. And so really, even though we've kind of talked about some of the generalized practices, the best way to really talk about voodoo and what it means is to talk about the loa. So the loa are the intermediaries. They are spirits. And you can think of them more like three-dimensional saints. And I don't mean like, I know you've seen three-dimensional saints if you walked in a Catholic church. (laughs) That's not what I mean. I mean, like, if saints had a more robust biography, like had done more interesting things. (laughs) Some have. (laughs) No, but they are more active. More active. They are the intermediaries. And um, I guess you could even consider them maybe like very active angels. Right. Or demons. <laughs> right. But there is in Vodou one supreme god, but he is busy. He which got, makes he sense. He ain't got time for your he shit. He ain't got time for your right. shit. And so instead of taking your everyday problems to him, you deal with Loa. Yes. And he exists in every game. So one of the key things to kind of understand, and I'm still getting my head around it, so bear with me, are that there are different nascents of loa it's like classifications i think of it as like suit playing card suits almost like a house like in game of thrones or harry potter okay it's this group that shares characteristics that makes them recognizable as a type for example you have your rata loa which are very beneficent and cooler tempered and older they're slower to act but they're gonna be gentler in their dealings with you generally so i'm guessing we have the not cool ones too right they're kind of diametric opposite are the petroloa and they are associated with the new world and it's said that they exist in haiti because of the hardships of slavery so they are not thought to be like necessarily african it's like the furnace of all of the struggles of haiti sort of forged this nascent Interesting. And they are hotter spirits, more temperamental, a little aggressive. Some people will say it's black magic to deal with them. I don't think that that is the most commonly held. I think it's better to just like think of it as a spectrum. Yeah. Like where they fall on the spectrum. Yes. Like they're a little on the hot, hot and cool spectrum. It's perfect. They're a little mm-hmm. on the hot side, a little on the cool side. Some are way more on the hot side. And then there's also the Nago which is thought to be more Nigerian in its origin, has more of a Yoruba influence. And this is where a lot of the Oguns or warrior spirits are going to be from. And we'll talk about them more in depth later. And then there's also this other group that I've seen defined so many different ways. I'm hesitant to even put a name on it. But a lot of the Haitian practitioners I've seen have listed these this group as Bazongo, and they're wild spirits. Like, if the other two are hot and cold, these are wild. They're off the spectrum. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe not everyone really plays with them. Like, not everyone invites them to show up. Yeah. Yeah, but they do. <laughs> Sometimes. Whether you want it or not. And then some people do invoke them, and it's very dangerous. Uh-huh. And then there are, I don't know they can be considered their own nascent, but they're definitely a, a designation of spirit, and that's the Gede. And those are your spirits of the dead. Right. That is what you would see like at Day of the Dead in Mexico, like that kind of ancestral idea. And you do have some principles, if you want to call them that, like some key figures that are always around, but then you might have your grandma. This is where you get your ancestral spirits and you could become one. Right. Now, some people say that 95% of people only deal with Rata Loa, 
ah. the cool Loa. Right. Maybe on purpose. I don't. I don't know how that actually plays out. Maybe it's who you're trying to pull up. Yeah, and then you're like, oh, wrong number. Hi. <laughs> So whether they be Petra Arata, cool or hot, or wherever they fall on the spectrum, we've got some interesting characters in this pantheon. Absolutely do. And I knew that I wanted to talk a lot on this episode about the Loa. And so I spent an incredible amount of time delving into each one and like really trying to sit with it for a while. And I had this incredible moment of clarity when I was listening to a voodoo song from Haiti talk about his experience with Gede Loa. And I had my pen and my paper out and I was like taking notes and he was like agitated and kind of had a aggressive tone throughout this video. And eventually he's like, I tell you like the one thing that I know is that the white man is obsessed with labels <laughs> as I'm sitting there with my pen and paper and I'm writing like, labels. think I need to rethink this. So we've, we have, we've rethought it and we've kind of come up with like a loose discussion on H1 that is as near as I can get to kind of embodying their archetype. And to me, that's how some of these, at least, can be thought of as like this archetype where things fit in under the heading. So first, we need to talk about Dambala. The snake. He is a serpent, and he's usually associated with white water. And he is invoked usually to create peace in very hostile or volatile situations. So one of the things I found most helpful in like getting to know each of these Loa is looking at the characteristics of the cheval when they've mounted. Like what a characteristic possession looks like. What the ridden does. Yes. Now if Dumbala mounts Dumbala Wido, the person he has mounted slithers and can be wrapped up in a white sheet. They often wish to submerge themselves in water and there are basins kept around for this purpose they never speak but they hiss his appearance is usually accompanied by like a very peaceful feeling he likes white foods and he especially likes eggs which the cheval will eat whole while he is mounted so very much like takes on the characteristics of a snake now another interesting feature of the loa is that they have syncretism with several catholic saints this is one of the things i find fascinating about voodoo is that there is what could be called syncretism it was kind of debated on if it even is or not because a lot of people say that originally the loas were kind of hidden or disguised in the form of saints like it was almost a code yeah but if you look into the stories of the saints you'll see that some of them line up very specifically And there probably was a little more to it than just a code or a hiding to where some of the attributes may have been kind of blended together. So, as I said, this conversation goes back and forth over what the role of the saints is, especially in Haitian voodoo. In New Orleans, it's been very much more incorporated. And we'll talk about that. (laughs) You know, some people say, like, why are all these white saints representing these African spirits. That's weird. And it's just like, it needs to go. And other people say like, this is the mask that allowed our religion to survive when we were being oppressed by people who didn't want us to practice it. And now we're thankful for them. So it goes back and forth. So Don Bala is associated with a few different figures. One being St. Patrick, who is the Petra version. And so St. Patrick, everybody knows, is the patron saint of Ireland. 
I've heard of him. Yeah, and what else do you know about him? What did he do? He drove out the snakes. He drove out the snakes from Ireland. That's why there are no snakes in Ireland. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have never been snakes in Ireland. But Shut up, <laughs> uh, Bells. But an interesting part of his story is that he was a slave. Mm. He was taken when he was 16 from Roman Britain mm-hmm. <laughs> and taken to Ireland and was a slave for many years. After he escaped from the Irish pirates that stole him, he went back to Britain, became a cleric, and returned to Ireland to preach the gospel, etc. And some people say that he is associated with the more fiery aspects of Dumbala because he is averse to snakes and drives them out. And so the other counterpart is Moses. That's the Rada version mm-hmm. because Moses has the staff. That turns into a snake. The hands to Aaron who throws it down. And it turns into a snake. Right. And that's how he proves to Pharaoh that God is on his side. So you get these really interesting themes. The first one, he was a slave. Oh, you mean say, well, Moses was too. You're right. Well, sort of. of. You have a slave that escapes, comes back and helps people drive snakes away. You also have Moses who frees the slaves. Right. You get these things. You could pick anybody to be Dambala. Why were these chosen? Right. They could pick any old white guy. <laughs> Statue. And we'll keep seeing this. It's very interesting. Aida Vedo is the female counterpart to Dambala, and she is associated with the rainbow. And that's where you get that classic Wes Craven movie, The Serpent and the Rainbow. Also an important work about photo by, by Wade Davis before it was camped. And went the way of all the other voodoo writing <laughs> to scare the shit out of people. Right, right. So the next person we have to talk about, or the next Loa we have to talk about, is Legba. Papa Legba. He is the gatekeeper. He's associated with Crossroads. And it's thought that he holds the keys to the spirit kingdom and will open the way for the Loa. So he's who you have to call on first. Must be served first. And he is old and feeble. His colors are yellow and white, and that varies so much. His feast day is June 13th. Our anniversary. Yep. (laughs) The cane he uses represents the center post. He's old and feeble and needs a cane. And his leg is lame from walking in both worlds. And he likes to keep dogs with him. Hmm. Uh, He is credited with being an intermediary between the living and the spirits. He's fond of children, and he's a great miracle worker. He helps find lost things. He loves to eat and loves to share his food with others like seeing people enjoying life enjoying food Uh, he's the guardian of communication and he will help you improve like your ability to reach out to a certain loa and get you clearer messages in haiti it's believed that he like pulls knowledge out of you that already exists like he's not imparting new knowledge he's just helping you access it and i think that kind of goes back to the idea that he is associated with finding lost things he gets the hidden knowledge out Mm -hmm. Now, he likes raw rum and honey. He does not usually mount, but when he does, he likes to wear sackcloth, the very plain clothes. He likes red wine. He likes bread, especially flatbread. And he likes to smoke. Cigars, usually, or corncob pipes. Where people always put, like, put cigarettes and things like that on his altars. Mm-hmm. And he likes cheap black coffee. Do not put sugar or cream in his coffee and do not get fancy coffee. <laughs> he likes roses and pennies. And yams. And he speaks in a low voice and only stays a short time. He's very humble and may weep with joy. And he loves lanterns. And he's associated with, like, the hermit and the tarot deck. Do not put out a wheelchair for him. He uses a cane. He does not like a wheelchair. He doesn't need that. Yeah. Older man, but he's not like an old coot. He's an old gentleman. 
And people say that his energy feels like a grandfather. Like he feels like wise and comforting and it's a very soothing presence usually. He reminds me a lot of the stories of like Christ coming dressed as a beggar. Well, he's often associated with a few different people. St. Peter, who has the keys to the kingdom. He is the gatekeeper, literally. Mm -hmm. But he's also often associated with St. Anthony. And so it's St. Anthony of Padua. And he is a very venerated saint in Catholic tradition, especially folk Catholic tradition, mm-hmm. um, because he is associated with finding lost things. Right. And so that's what I grew up hearing that he was kind of associated with. You'd pray to St. Anthony if you lost something. You can also write him a check. Like, I've seen people do that before. Like, they'll just write St. Anthony a $20 check, and they never cash it or put it in anywhere. They'll just write it. And that's supposed to help them find whatever they've lost. You can also bury him upside down in your yard if you want to sell your house. There's all kinds of crazy. There's a lot. There's a lot. Legba and St. Anthony are also associated with children. Mm -hmm. So St. Anthony is often depicted holding an infant Jesus, sometimes just a mini Jesus in old paintings. Because this is based on a vision that he had of the Christ child. That the saint is said to have had while staying with a nobleman. And when the nobleman peeked into the room to see how Anthony was doing, he saw Anthony holding the child in his arms. Why was that nobleman peeking? (laughs) Right? But, cool story, people see that reflected in Legba too because the, the Christ child that Anthony is holding indicates his closeness to divinity. Like he's first in line kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So Sloa I want to talk about next is in this spot because he is the opposite of Legba. They are two sides of the same coin, but it kind of shows you how the counterpoints work. Okay. This is Kalfu. So he's not as nice. (laughs) He's the Petro counterpart to the Rada Loa Legba. And he is also associated with the crossroads. People say he is evil. Like, it is a word I see practicing voodoo assaults use again and again. I was surprised to see that. So why is he so evil? I think because Legba's so good. Because it's like, he has to be the opposite. As good as Legba is, he has to be that bad. So he balances things out. He's needed for balance. So he's the grand master of sorcery. And he will only allow the crossing of negative spirits if legba lets in the good he lets in the bad so this is not someone you would call on we might not regularly like a bokar might Mm. his powers and energy are required for balance but everything related to black magic and spells comes through him like he has you have to get his approval you have to get him to open the door for any of it to work it's not just in methodology or personality that he's the opposite of Legba. Legba's old and feeble and needs a cane to walk. He is young and handsome and powerful and very, very virulent and strong. People say that this is because wisdom has not aged him the way it has aged Legba. Hmm. Interesting. So he's rash. His ceremonies take place at a crossroads at night. If you want to learn to play guitar, you may want to talk to Kafu. Mm-hmm. You may have to pay a little too much for it. Yep. He's associated with the crossroads and the moon. No one speaks well in his presence because they fear that he will take everything very personally and might bring some serious bad luck or destruction to their lives. Now, he brings other dark spirits with him that would not normally be invoked by many people on purpose, like Marinette, Leglansu, Bacalo, and Baca. 
His offering is the bull, and he's very precise with what he does. He's very powerful, but he only uses like seven leaves to do his work. He knows exactly what he's doing. So not shockingly, he does not have a saint associated with him. One of the ones I mentioned, one of the spirits I mentioned that would come with him sometimes is very interesting. That is Leglin Sue, and he enforces secret keeping and executes swift, fierce justice. He's associated with the Sacred Heart of Jesus, which is creepy. He's considered to be like like a Freemason, like have that kind of esoteric knowledge. And this is the guy that when he rides you, they like chew on glass and like bite through bottles. And barbed wire. Ugh. It is a creepy thing to watch. And he will exact punishment on people who break promises or don't keep secrets that they're sworn to keep. So he is like the ultimate dark version of Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> okay. If Jiminy Cricket ate glass. And he rarely mounts it when he does. The rites must be performed exactly to specification, or he will punish people. So the next Loa to be served, if you'd served Legba, the next one that you would need to serve at a ceremony would be the Marasa. They're interesting because they're like twins in basic terms. And there's a lot of magic in twins in African tradition. Yes, that's true. And like there are even special names that are given to the parents of twins. It's considered very lucky. They're very blessed, etc. And they're said to be like the manifestation of the idea of one plus one equals three. Like it's almost like a holy trinity. Like like synergistic. Thing. Yes. They build on each other's power. Mm-hmm. Now they're extremely good healers. They can double or triple things. They bring luck and they're very family oriented. And if you have twins in your family, you should serve them. Definitely for sure. Now they come as children. When they mount, they laugh and cry. They might throw food from their altars. They love toys, but make sure you have enough for them. Like don't just have one toy. You need to have one. I mean, this is a basic parenting principle. (laughs) Seems practical. So there are a bunch of different versions of them. There's Marasa Dosu Dasa, and that's the divine twins, which are Marasa De. So in addition to the divine twins, Marasa De, there's a sister, Dosu Dasa, and she's born after them. And when they come together, they're called Marasa Twa. But it's believed that the child born after twins is even more powerful. Yes. And I find that very interesting. If all three of them are represented, it's Marasa Twa. And that will go along with depictions of faith, hope, and charity. Oh, okay. And then a lot of times they're also associated with St. Nicholas because he often has children depicted in his iconography. You also see him associated with St. Cosmos and St. Damien, who were two kind of physician saints who were often depicted with medical instruments, like their iconography is a urine bottle. Yay! Hooray! But they were actually early Christian martyrs born in Arabia Mm -hmm. and became skilled physicians. And they were reputed twin brothers. So it makes sense. And then you have the spiritual forefathers of the Mambo and Ungan, which are Papa Loco and Grandi Azin or Ayazan. And they are basically just like your archetypical priest and priestess. And they're said to be the first Mambo and Ungan. And normally they're served by people who are either preparing to take the Asan or have taken the Asan, and they are very associated with that rite. And Papa Loco is another one of the Loa that likes to see charitable giving of his altar. Makes sense, since he's kind of leads the Ugan on their kind of spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. 
And then there is La Serene. A mermaid? She is a mermaid. Hooray. She's a mermaid and she's fabulous. And she is a beautiful woman, the queen of the sea and the ruler of the moon. And she's said to have mixed ancestry with light skin, dark, long black hair and light eyes. And she's associated with any color that can be found in the ocean. So like light green, light blue, white, silver. There's a theme. Mm. (laughs) An ocean theme. Yes. And she rules over wealth and musical talent. And she bestows great wealth and beauty on her followers. She brings luck and wealth, but will punish enemies of her followers. Helps with love issues and is very generous to those who are very loyal to her. She may also drown people. Like a mermaid. (laughs) Like a mermaid. Um, If you disappoint her. Do not disappoint her. No, people who she mounts may lie on the ground and flounder a bit. And they kind of pantomime a whale. And one of her praise names is La Belline. The whale. Mm -hmm. (laughs) See, I wouldn't call her the whale. I would think that would make her angry. Offensive, I know. But we don't know. We don't know. It becomes difficult for her cheval to walk. And often, Hulensees or interns will come and link arms with her and allow her to dangle her feet between them and kind of move them in unison like a tail like a tail yeah. yeah so she will steal you away and drag you under the water if you make her angry and some people say that if you blaspheme too near the shore about la Serene, if you talk too much shit about her she will come get you and take you under the water really and keep you there for seven years It's a long time. And there's actually a story that supposedly happened in Port-au-Prince in the 1960s where there was this Protestant minister and politician who was preaching against Vodou as he stood on the beach and he launches into a violent tirade about her and a massive wave sweeps him off the shore. And seven years later, he returned looking white as a ghost. And when people told him that they thought he had died, he responded, it would have been better if I were. So she took him down there, held him for seven years, and then released him. Holy cow. But she'll also take people and give them mystical knowledge. If you're not a Protestant minister. (laughs) Preaching against voodoo on the beach because you're an idiot. But, you know, there are stories that her followers will reemerge and they'll be paler and have white hair from being kept underwater. But they will have learned more than they ever could have in that amount of time. It's usually seven years. So she is associated with Our Lady of Navigators. Is that a real thing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> kind of. It is. It is a version of the Virgin Mary. Uh-huh. That confuses me. Why are there so many Marys? Because they're, you know, used for different things. Okay. So this is one that is used as a protector of sailors. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, her origins are from the 15th century. Mm-hmm. Portuguese sailors. The Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria? And the slave ships. Okay. And so they are the main people that would worship to Our Lady of Navigators. And so it was probably definitely something that was around uh, at the time of the formation of voodoo. That is so interesting. Her male counterpart is Metagwe, and he's known as the Great Admiral, or the King of the Watery Realm. And he's, you know, nautical as well, and he likes... They both like anything to do with the sea on their altars, like shells, and she loves coral jewelry, and he likes anchors, and you get it. And he's also said to be like mixed ancestry, light skin, light, like blue, green eyes, ocean colored eyes. 
And he, he has like this weird association with St. Ulrich. This is one of those where it probably is just what the iconography looked like. Mm-hmm. He's just the bishop holding a fish. Yeah, that'll do it. And there's really no story tying it to Metagwa's story. And so one of the things that's done to honor him is the hanging of a ship in the peristyle, like a model ship. And they're beautiful. A lot of them are very intricate. And they you know, suspend them from the ceiling. And the motion of the wind is supposed to you know, mimic. It moves like the waves. Mm-hmm. He is especially important in San Dominique or Haiti because he is said to have journeyed from Africa with the transatlantic slave trade. And so he's very important because so many people died on the journey that he has kind of like the ancestors. He has those ancestors that died Mm. on their way to Haiti or kind of in his care. And so he is is particularly important. Yeah. And his symbol is more the ship than it is St. Ulrich. And this must be mentioned before we move on. Should he mount, his cheval will sit on a small chair. Not a big one. Only a, a tiny one. A tiny one. And use whatever is available as like a little oar and paddle themselves. <laughs> and so there really is a very important element of voodoo is in these ancestral spirits in the Gede. So the Gede are, as I said, any spirit of any person that was once a corporeal living, breathing person. But there is Papa Gede. There is the principal Gede. And he has his own personality. The Gede family is ever expanding, ever changing, and could not be chronicled appropriately because it is legitimately different for each person. All right, so whoever the ancestors are. Now, he's associated with dark colors, purple and black, and he's extremely psychic. And he's the protector and healer of children. And he also may help with fertility issues. We'll make sure that children are well-fed and offers clarity and truth, the wisdom of the ancestors, knowledge about the dead or death in general, kind of that mystery of death. And he's the guardian of the womb and unborn children. You see the beginning and end of life. It's very interesting to me like that he does coverage of what can be considered the most important aspects, especially in this religion, the bringing of life and death. Well, it's because it's all crossing the spiritual plane. It's when you go out of the physical into the spirit and out of the spirit into the physical. And this kind of faith system versus your Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition to where they're, you know, they say death is not the end. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you go on to a, another realm. In this religion, you, you are going on to another realm, but you're also hanging out. Yeah. And you're helping protect your family and your people, and you stick around. I like that. It's a but good sentiment. His Fet Gede is a huge holiday, and it's like the Day of the Dead. It's on the Day of the Dead. It's All Souls Day, and it's very similar to like the Mexican Day of the Dead. And in even the decorations and kind of iconography of that day are very similar. Now, he is rowdy. Sex. He's, he's all about sex. He's all sex. Gede in general, when any Gede, but Papa Gede too, mount, people dance the banda. The banda. Which is a super sexy dance, apparently. Apparently? Um, apparently. Super You've sexy. <laughs> super sexy. It's like supposed to mimic sexual intercourse. He's crude, but he's very amusing. He might use foul language or like play fight. He's generally just vulgar, but warm 
He likes Paman, which is raw rum infused with 21 hot peppers. Oh, God. And so this is one of those things that people can do when they're mounted that they shouldn't be able to do, much like eating glass. I would want to do that. No, but they'll like... They'll wash their face with it. They'll pour it in their eyes. They'll pour it on their genitals. It's oh, like ow. a thing. It sounds painful. It It's not, though. Right. Because the loa is doing it. You're not in your body. You're not even there. You don't even know it's happening. And it said that he does not follow the rules of civilization because he's dead and he doesn't face any consequences for his actions. So Pompagede is usually depicted as St. Gerard Magella, who is, in Catholic tradition, the intercessor for unborn children, women in childbirth, expectant mothers, the things that he is invoked to help. Mm-hmm. So in the hagiography for St. Gerard, he goes and visits a family and accidentally drops a handkerchief. And one of the girls stops him and tries to give it back and he says, keep it. You may need it someday. And years later, that girl, who was now married, they make sure to say that, <laughs> was about to die during childbirth. And she remembered the words of that visiting brother. And so they brought the handkerchief to her. And almost immediately, all of the pain disappeared. And she got better. And she was able to deliver a healthy child. Was it soaked in chloroform? That might make it easier. But he was known for a long period of time in Italy as the protector of children. Mm-hmm. And even during the process of his beatification, one witness testified that he was known as Il Santo del Felicipati. The saint of happy childbirths. But he wasn't canonized until 1904. He's a Johnny-come-lately. Oh, so he was like, kind of like a folk saint. Oh, so people just didn't care. For a long... Oh, no. Yeah. Saints weren't actually beatified by the Roman Catholic Church the last few centuries. Before that, they were all local saints. And that's why it's interesting that these some of these saints come from specific areas. Okay. Like from Portugal, where... This was part of the triangle trade. Exactly. Right. Okay. That, that doesn't, like, add another dimension. I didn't realize that. I thought yeah. you, like, got to be Catholic and they handed you your book of the saints, like, from time and They more. do now. Yeah, no, I thought it was more like that. But this was just, like, whatever ragtag collection of folk heroes you were assigned because of the place where you were born. Yeah, and we'll see more of that. So in the family of the Gede, two of the principals are Boan Samdi and Maman Brigitte. And they are the father and mother of all Gede. And usually every cemetery has its own Boan Samdi and its own Maman Brigitte. And they are the first male and female buried in the cemetery. And their graves will be marked with crosses, which are like meant to designate them as such. Yes, they'll have big black crosses. Sometimes white. Well, it's sometimes black. <laughs> and there will be altars set up there. So, Buwan Sandy is usually depicted wearing a top hat, a black tuxedo or dinner jacket, and dark glasses with one of the lenses popped out. So you can see both sides. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he'll put cotton plugs in his nostrils. Like they do to dead bodies. Mm-hmm. He's supposed to be, like, prepared for burial, dressed for burial kind of thing, wearing his best. And sometimes he has a white skull painted on his face. Sometimes his face is just a skull. Sometimes he has a normal face. Just depends. And he speaks in a high nasal voice. And he's called on to heal those that are near death. That's his area of expertise. Like he's in charge of kind of who goes through and maybe he can you know, stop him at the gates. And help a little. Uh, he's sometimes said to be like the, the spiritual grave digger in a way. Like the, 
master of the cemetery. Right, grave diggers, that's their loa. It's like a patron saint. He greets the soul after death, and he teaches us that life is too short to be unhappy, and he comes at the end of all things. And I found this really interesting, because it might be the end of a relationship, it might be the end of a dispute, end of a court case, whatever. The death of something. Yes, and I think that's really cool, because you see that, like that was something I picked up on and like keyed into, because like that's true in tarot archetypes and stuff like you'll always hear people doing tarot readings they'll put the death card down be like don't worry it just means change oh no i saw that in the movie it just means change the voodoo priestess put the death card down and then a demon came yeah no it's (laughs) it's gonna be okay boo boo no like other getes he loves cigars he loves raw rum with peppers he loves women and he has a woman he has a woman but there's one thing you should know bawan samdi what's that if you don't want to know something, you should not ask him. Oh, he's going to tell you? Mm-hmm. Even if you like it or not? Honest. Ruthlessly honest, this one. Now, he is associated with Maman Brigitte. And she's associated with serpents, dark colors. And she's said to be fair-haired or red-headed, white-skinned, with green eyes. And she protects graves, guides people to the afterlife, guards ancestral knowledge, She also has connections to fertility, blesses graves that are marked with the appropriate crosses. She's associated with arts and crafts, medicine, poetry, can kill with her magic, but can also resurrect. Now, she is also associated with Banda dancing, exudes sexuality, often manifests at the cemetery, enjoys having a good time. She's uninhibited, speaks from the heart, may use profanity, but also likes the spiced rum. She's associated with black roosters. And, like, I keep seeing over and over again, people are like, no, but really, she's the best dancer. Like, seriously, she's just, like, the best dancer. Even if it's a little raunchy. That's also another word I kept seeing with her, <laughs> is raunchy. So, Baron Samdi and Mama Brigitte have some really interesting iconography to go with them. So, with Baron Samdi, he's associated with St. Martin de Pours. And he's an interesting saint because mm-hmm. he is also of mixed race. And he's the patron saint of people of mixed race. And he was a lay brother of the Dominican order in Peru. He was the illegitimate son of a Spanish nobleman. So he was trained as a barber. So he was a healer. Oh, back when barbers were dentists. Yes, (laughs) and everything. They did all of it. And then he went to the Dominican order. He wanted to become a brother, but he was not allowed legally. And so they kind of... Were you not allowed to be a brother if you were... Was it mixed race or was it because he was illegitimate? It was a mixed race. Oh my God. That's so... Okay. I'm not going to fight a battle with like 14th century. (laughs) It's not that old. But he... (laughs) There were not Spanish in Peru in the 14th century. Whatever. But so they allowed him to kind of come work with them. And he was such a devout follower. And he was kind of just did the, the janitorial work and took care of some of the sick because of his background. And eventually, he was such a devout person that the head of the order said, screw the laws, and allowed him to take his oaths. So he did become a brother in the Dominican order. Um, He was in charge of the infirmary. Mm -hmm. He has many miracles attributed to him, such as levitation, bilocation. He could have miraculous knowledge and cure the sick, along with communicate with animals. There's one story of him kneeling in prayer and the steps and he catch fire and everyone sees it and he doesn't move. Hmm. 
But he is depicted as a young mixed race friar wearing the old habit of the Dominican lay brothers along with a broom since he was such a worker. And so it's just kind of interesting that he is the patron saint of kind of mixed race people and also like the healer kind of associated with Baron Samdi, kind of that person that's between life and death. Mm-hmm. And then Mama Brigitte is associated with Saint Brigitte, who is another patron saint of Ireland. And she's also from like kind of that same time that St. Patrick was at. According to her hagiography, she was an early Irish Christian nun. And so she also was purportedly born into slavery. And she performed many cures, including healing and feeding the poor. And one interesting thing I have to bring up is that when she was dying, St. Brigitte is said to have been given the last rites by St. Ninand, who after had his right hand encased in metal so that it would never be defiled. And he became known as Knighted of the Clean Hand. That gives a whole new meaning to working, serving with both hands. But interesting thing about Brigitte is that people think that she came from a Celtic folk tradition. It might have been from some of the Irish who were transported along with Africans or may have come to Saint-Dominique as indentured servants and brought this folk saint with them. Right, because she was most likely adopted from the Celtic goddess Brigid and turned into a Catholic saint, you know, back in Ireland. But they think that this like cross-cultural moment could represent like her origin as well as the origin of puppets in the practice of voodoo or voodoo dolls. Interesting. And that's just conjecture, but you'll see that a lot. So let's talk about a Nago Loa. A Nago. These are from the Yoruba tradition. Ogu or Ogun is kind of the name of like a suit of cards. Again, like a, you know, there are many Ogu. And he is associated with iron and fire. He likes blue and red. And people dress in khaki to attract him because it's the military color. He's a warrior. So do they usually invoke him for like battle... Yes, even spiritual battle or magical battles. He enforces secret keeping and sworn oaths. He represents battle of all sorts, chief of the warriors. And a lot of people, like to sum him up quickly, are like, think Ares, think Mars. He's associated with civilization and progress and technology. He guards doctors because surgeons have knives, military and police. So Ogu Foray will often yell when he's mounted someone, he's got a very aggressive tone. But there's another Ogu named Sinjak, who has a very high and feminine voice. And Ogu is the master of the machete, and people who he has mounted will often stick the point in their stomach and bend inward and have no marks. And are these like those interesting, like kind of machete dancing that they do? Yeah. Kind of ceremonial fighting. Mm-hmm. And he loves women. He often proposes to women when he's mounted someone. He's kind of like the super masculine dude. And he likes to wear like Panama hats and military shirts. And he loves red roosters and bulls for sacrifice. Uh, He drinks raw rum. And sometimes these are steeped with certain herbs for him. Might take a cigar. Pretty fond of a cigar. And many of his offerings are done at railroads because he's associated with locomotives because of the steel and iron and technology and progress and power. Power. You often hear that all ogus are ogu, 
but there are nuances and subtle differences in the way that their services are to be carried out. And so some of them include like Ogu Sinjak, Ogu Yesmin, Ogu Badagri, and Ogu Balinjo. And so he is sort of his own point on the spectrum. While he's a warrior and he's hot and he's fiery, he's also very orderly because he's got that military streak to him. That's kind of key to understanding his personality. So the Ugan are usually associated with kind of these warrior saints. Mm -hmm. Now, St. George is kind of an obvious one. He's usually depicted, you know, with a spear, piercing, a dragon. We kind of talked about him on the St. Germain episode that he's pretty much an invented saint, Mm -hmm. probably from Muslim tradition. And another one he's associated with is St. James the Greater. Is an apostle. Yes, he's one of the apostles. So a tradition I didn't know. What, Bells? (laughs) I know. So, say that he miraculously appeared to fight for the Christian armies during the legendary Battle of Clavijo and was henceforth called Santiago Matamoros, St. James the Moor Slayer. And the Spanish armies would call out, St. James and strike for Spain, in Mm. Spanish. (laughs) I'm sure it was much catchier in Spanish. Also, in the African kingdom of Congo... When King Alfonso I of Congo, the second Christian king, was facing a rival, his brother, in battle, he reported that a vision of St. James and the heavenly host appeared in the sky and frightened the soldiers and gave Alfonso the victory. And they still celebrate St. James' feast day, July 25th, as a national holiday. So over the years, St. James' day has become a very central holiday in Congo. That's really interesting. I like that story. We talked about Ogu. Let's talk about his woman. His woman. He's got a woman. And she's Izili Freida. There are several Izilis, like there are several Oguns. This is Izili Freida. And she is as feminine as Ogun is masculine. She is romance and luxury and love and gambling luck. Luck be a lady, I guess. She's associated with hearts. And like her, all of her veves have hearts. She's usually depicted as white or light-skinned with long blonde hair and associated with like light pink and white and just girly, I guess, is the best way to describe her. She's also associated with the feeling of cool and calm. She can counter poison, which is a cool, cool trick. Brings a need for perfection in her followers and will punish people if she feels jilted or taken for granted. And I found like her, the description of how to prepare her altar very informative because... It's like, clean the space. No, like, seriously, like, vacuum your carpet. Like, dust the whatever surface you're going to use for your altar. Make sure everything is actually clean. Bathe. Wash your hair. So, like, a purity kind of idea. And she loves pink champagne and... Who doesn't? Right? (laughs) Rice cooked with cinnamon and milk. Just, like, sweet and, Mm -hmm. like, sweet perfumes (laughs) and roses. And you can present her... Three gold rings. Why three gold rings? Because she's married to three gods, or Loa. Who's that? Dambala, Agwe, and Ogun. And so sometimes she's seen as like a triple goddess in that way, because she has all these aspects. She has all these sides to herself, and she's complex. And I, I don't know. I think she's an interesting, interesting one, because she is so like soft and feminine, but she's also vengeful. And she will often marry men. The same way that Ogun will propose to women. Like when she's riding. Oh, well, you can marry a Loa. Oh, okay. 
If you marry a loa, there's a formal ceremony that is done, and you will serve them, and you wear rings on your fingers to indicate that you are married to that loa, and you are prohibited from having sex on certain days of the week, and it's like a whole thing. And so she and Ogun are two of the most commonly married loa. Okay. She's supposed to be such like a powerful wife that she can cause disputes between like men and women. Like women get jealous of her. <laughs> well, she's so sweet. She's well, she she's kind of kind of an interesting association because she's associated with Mata de la Rosa or Our Lady of Sorrows, mm-hmm. which is like a popular Virgin Mary who is pierced by seven long kind of daggers or swords. And she's often like bleeding and like in sorrow. It's terrible. <laughs> so I'm not sure exactly why those two are associated. She's also the, a patron saint of Poland. And if you remember, Polish. we mentioned that the Polish were in Haiti and eventually turned on the French who brought them over and helped the revolt. Another Azili we've got to talk about, and I think it will help us understand Azili Freda a bit better. I think so. Is Azili Dantor. She's a Petroloa. So a hot-tempered loa. Right. But she's also the mother of Haiti, and she's seen as the archetypical, like, perfect mother. I still think hot-tempered loa fits well. Yep, I'm fine with it. I mean, she's associated with just, like, rich, saturated colors, like navy blue and red. You can already see the difference between her and Freda. And she cares for children, but she can also be a bit of a disciplinarian. She will not tolerate children behaving badly. And she engages quickly. And she is associated with paquettes. Like Macandal. Mm-hmm. She's very passionate and given to extremes of emotion. If she mounts people, she might flirt, behave kind of coquettishly, but she might cry herself to sleep, weeping for the limitations of love. It's said that she doesn't speak because she had her tongue cut out. What? She just utters ki-ki-ki or d-d-d. Oh, that's kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. She likes unisex cologne, anything musky smelling, Florida water, loves denim clothing, dolls and stones. She sometimes will take red wine or creme de coco. She likes black Creole pigs to be her sacrifice. And so that's who sacrificed to during the Haitian Revolution. Yes, and that is who mounted Cecile Fataman. She likes strong, filterless cigarettes. And she also marries her followers. It's said that she is mute and deaf, and sometimes there will be another Loa present for her translating that will come through with her. And it goes back to the Haitian Revolution. Before the revolution, Mambo Marinette, Cecile, was possessed by Azili. And in order to keep it all a secret, that's when she like lost her tongue and lost her hearing. I've only seen that some places, but it's interesting. And she's also like depicted with scars on her face as well. Well, that's because she and Freda got in a fight. Really? Yes, they are sworn enemies. Really? They're sisters, they're also sworn enemies. Makes sense. <laughs> and they were fighting over Ogun. I mean, he's like marrying everybody. <laughs> he's marrying everybody, but they were fighting over him. And she stabbed Freda. And that's why she has the knives. All the knives in her heart. But Freda turned around and shot back by scarring her face. And that's why she has the scars on her face. So that is very interesting. So Azili Dantor is associated with what some people call St. Barbara Afrikaans, mm-hmm. which is kind of a folk saint, but whose origins are really the Black Madonna from Poland. What? Why is there a Black Madonna in Poland? Well, 
We talked about how the Polish were there, right? They were hired by the French to help with... Mm, in the help, Haitian Revolution. Yeah, so okay. they turned on the French. And this is where we get these Polish kind of saints, Haitian traditions. Okay. But this was a very revered icon in Poland and is kind of known as like the mother of Poland. You know, she is okay. the Mary of Poland. She's been associated with Poland for over 600 years. Now, prior to its arrival in Poland, there are many legends on where it may have came from, including that St. Luke himself painted it on a cedar tabletop from the house of the Holy Family. Cool. The same legend holds that the painting was discovered in Jerusalem in 326 by St. Helena, who brought it back to Constantinople and presented it to her son, Constantine. Oh, fun. Now, art historians say that it probably is a Byzantine icon. Mm Mm-hmm. That was created the 6th or 9th century. Wow. And it was brought to Poland in the 14th century. Now, no one knows why she is pigmented that way. It could be that she was painted that way. Could be. Could be that it was just aging of the pigments. Mm -hmm. But no matter what it is, (laughs) she is the Black Madonna. She has three lines on her face, three Mm -hmm. scars. There is a legend concerning this as well. When the Hussites stormed the monastery in 1430, they plundered the sanctuary and stole the Black Madonna. Now, after putting it in their wagon, the Hussites tried to get away, but their horses refused to move. They threw the portrait down to the ground, and one of the plunderers drew his sword upon the image, inflicting the deep strikes. And when the robber tried to inflict the third strike, he fell to the ground and writhed in agony until he died. That is a magic Mary. Right. And because of its you know, ancient paint and no one really knows exactly how it was done. Mm-hmm. It's like a mix of like wax and pigment. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've tried to restore it back in the day and were never able to completely correct the scars. So they are not painted in. Like that is, it is actual damage done to the icon. But it's continued in the depictions. You can see it in any depiction of it. That's really cool. And they say that whenever they were fixing it, fixing it, mm-hmm. <laughs> they gave it more of a European features. Oh, so they, they, they fixed it. They fixed it. Okay. The quotation marks. Because you know, it's Byzantine, so it's more from Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. Middle East, you know, Turkey area. And so it's definitely changed over the years. It's so interesting. When did they fix it? Just In the Middle Ages. Okay. <laughs> so we haven't got perspective down yet, but everyone's a critic. Now, it's said that the story behind the association has to do with the Polish arriving to fight with the French, Polish mercenaries, and them changing their mind and deciding to ally themselves with the slaves. But when the Haitians saw them marching into battle or marching to join them, holding up this icon. A black banana. That they recognized Azili Dantor and knew that she would deliver them through the battle. One account I read said, when they saw them carrying the icon into battle, they immediately recognized her battered features and warrior spirit. And they knew they could trust the Polish mercenaries since Dantor herself had sent them. So that is incredibly interesting, especially because the legend has deepened and been incorporated to reflect the relationship between Freda, another Polish Madonna. Right. They definitely work together. I mean, their yeah. source is the same. 
and Dantor, it shows that, you know, we've accounted for the, the knives and the scars and, you know, it makes sense now we've uh, found all that out. And so while we have these Loa that are tied to, you know, some of these African traditions and some of the European traditions, we do have Loa that are associated with the Haitian history. And so one of those that's really interesting is Marinette Boissac. Marinette of the dry arms. Sometimes she's dry feet. Yes. (laughs) And she's associated with the color red. And she is one of the wild loas that we were talking about earlier. And she's thought to be the Mambo, Mambo Marinette, Cecile Fatima, who is presiding over the Boacamine. So what does she do? She is a lot to handle. But she does have dominion over werewolves, which is cool. The little garous. She's a great sorceress. She's very feared and respected. If she comes and mounts, she will talk of recent crimes in horrible and grotesque detail. She has gnarled hands and a very scratchy voice that's said to be like a screech owl. And she likes black goats and hens, and she likes them to be set on fire while alive. Oh, friendly. She's cruel. There's a ceremony that's held for her in which a brule marionette, an effigy of a woman, sits in a chair in the middle of a bonfire and spiritual artifacts are placed with the figure along with an animal to be sacrificed. And then they set it all on fire. They burn the effigy, they burn the goat, they burn the artifacts, they burn it all. Fire chaos. But it's, it's because Cecile Fatiman was said to have been burned uh-huh. as a result of her participation in the ceremony. And then... Another law that is very revered in Haiti is that of Bukman, the first Ungan. He's you know, said to be very dark-skinned and a very large, strong man. So that's kind of like my very rough-hewn beginner's guide to some of the loa as presented by a person who does not fully understand them. <laughs> but one of my favorite things I read when I was doing my research... It was this woman who chronicled her interactions with uh, Legba. And she was like, my Legba is like this. My Legba likes his yams cooked this way with sunflower seeds on top. My Legba. And <laughs> she was like, my Legba is not your Legba. Your Legba will be different. And I thought that was really illuminating. And I think that that is kind of the crooks of what you need to understand is these are kind of archetypes but they get very personal right you see that in like the the essence of the interaction you know you see that in the the mounting and you see that in in the way that people serve them and marrying them and whatever form that relationship takes is is kind of your truth but another thing we need to talk about before we can before we can conclude that we have have demystified voodoo yes are the zombies. We need zombies. to talk about the zombie apocalypse. Yes, um, Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So really, when you think of these kind of Hollywood depictions, westernized depictions of voodoo, I mean, the word zombie always comes to mind, especially now zombies are so popular. They are like the thing. So what do you think of when you think of zombie? I mean, I do think of the Walking Dead. I think of like rotting corpses with their arms out and brains. Yeah, I mean, that's what everyone thinks of. And it really has almost zero relation to <laughs> the kind of Haitian zombie. Now, our modern idea of a zombie comes almost entirely from George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Okay. 
where you have like a depictor, like these like living dead that are coming around looking to eat brains. But really, it said that he bred the zombie with the vampire, and what he got was a hybrid mixture of a ghastly plague monster. Now, they're actually in the film called ghouls and never used the word zombie, but it quickly became associated with it. But really, that modern zombie idea is more of a revenant. And we've talked about revenants before. They're like corpse ghosts. Right, coming back, wandering around. And if you mix like a touch of rabies in there, touch of vampirism, <laughs> you, mm-hmm. get, you can get some fast zombies too. Because most of the time, zombies like have the zombie walk, right? Yeah, yeah. And so Roger Ebert said that Romero used it as a vehicle to criticize real world social ills, such as government ineptitude, bioengineering, slavery, greed, and exploitation, while indulging our post-apocalyptic fantasies. So now might be a good moment for a zombie movie is what you're saying. Well, it's, it is the thing. True. But I mean, look how many of those actual ideas are seen in voodoo, strangely right. enough. Right. Now, there were earlier depictions of zombies. Oh, yes. I'm aware. We watched it. <laughs> so the 1932 movie with Bela Lugosi in it, his first movie called White Zombie. So this is Bela Lugosi before Bela Lugosi was cool, is what you're telling me. But wait. He was always cool. He was always cool. So it's White Zombie, because it's all white people. It does take place in Haiti. But they're all white people. Yeah. Oddly enough. Well, no, there's some, no, there's some black people. Yeah, but they're yeah. like actual living actors. None of the zombies are black. They aren't. I know. It's like it's almost like they were trying to be PC for some, something. But you have Bela Lugosi playing Murder Legendaire. Murder legendaire. You heard me. Okay. Subtle. So guess what happens? (laughs) Okay. There is a beautiful white woman in Jeopardy. Yes. Okay. One uh, point to uh, Dracula formula. Is there a young suitor or a lover who must save her? Yeah. All right. Um, Bella Lugosi is too cool to be a zombie, so he must command an army of zombies. Mm -hmm. The zombies he have run his sugar mill. That's a good use for a zombie. Oh. And so, yeah, in the movie, you've got, you know, a guy that wants this woman. And so he gets Madela Legendaire to turn her into a zombie. So this is a movie about roofies. Kind of. Bill Cosby was a fan. Aw. So that movie, while it's still ridiculous and is actually based on some of the American writing about zombies from the American occupation of Haiti. Like that went from like early 1900s to like the 1930s yeah it's still completely ridiculous but it comes a lot closer to getting the idea of like a haitian voter zombie it's much closer yeah than george romero yes not to knock george romero because like he modern zombies are zombies. cool yeah. call, they're just they shouldn't be called zombies right should we call ghouls which makes me think of the graveyard book in which there are ghouls mm-hmm. and they are very creepy <laughs> So a better depiction of a kind of traditional zombie folklore in that lore would be a story that's told that in 1918, the factory of the Haitian American Sugar Corporation in Port-au-Prince needed cheap labor. So the foreman and his wife brought nine confused-looking men dressed in rags with glassy eyes and dragging their feet. And they were hired and they were able to do the work of many men who were incredibly strong. Now, one morning when the foreman was away, his wife wanted to give the men a reward and gave them some peanuts. Now, salt is known to awaken a zombie from its state. 
And after they ate the peanuts, the zombies began to scream for blood and yelling. They fled back to their native village. These dead, walking in single file, were seen by the villager. The crowd approached, recognizing their missing family members. The majority understood that they'd been stolen from their graves and turned into zombies. As the families tried to embrace them, they continued to walk, walking toward the graveyard. Now each one found their own grave and began to scratch the ground. Then they would lay down in their sepulchers. Then they immediately began to rot. Now the other men from the village went to an ugong, placed a spell on the foreman, but they were worried it would not work fast enough. So several of the men went off in the night and beheaded him with their machetes. Take that, Robert Kirkman. That's a story. Take that. Oh my God, that's a really good story. It is. Our question today, believe it or not, is not do zombies exist? Because they do. They exist? They do exist. Zombies are a real part of Haitian voodoo tradition. So what's our question? If that's not our question, that seems like we're... uh... (laughs) We're skimming over some rife question territory. <laughs> I think it's it's more, what is a zombie? Okay. How do you make a zombie? Let's not tell our listeners how to make zombies. Well, it's pretty complicated. <laughs> okay, tell them. They'll burn out. <laughs> so, important information you need to know in order to make a zombie. Are you going to give me a recipe? No. We don't already have one prepared in the oven? <laughs> I don't want one. Is that you have to know that a person is kind of split into several parts. You have your physical body, your flesh, and then you have your name, and that's the spirit that kind of animates the flesh. It's mortal. Mm-hmm. Whenever you die, it kind of just goes back into the earth. You have your zeatole, which is your star of destiny that lives away from the body in paradise. And then the two important parts for this is you have your tibonage or petit bonage that corresponds to the part of the person that's in contact with your loas, with memory, with consciousness and authority. It can travel in the night as dreams, and it can learn from your loas. And then you also have the guanbanage, which is kind of more your motor aspects, your will and intelligence. And now once one's consecrated into voodoo, you can be consecrated with a certain loa. Part of that loa stays with you until it's removed after death. Okay. Or freed. Now you can place part of your spirit in a bottle. And place it in the protection of a peristyle so that no one with bad intentions can capture it. It's said the bottles are so filled with spirits that they cannot be lifted or moved. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say Catholic people bury themselves in churches. Not that crazy. No, I'm saying that's that's also crazy. Oh, fine. (laughs) So whenever one dies, you kind of go through a process where... The parts of the soul leave. That, leave at different times? They, they like do, have they their, do. So yeah. like I said, you can leave and eventually become a loa. Mm-hmm. I get it. Protect your family. Yeah. But there's a very specific way in which they prepare the dead. So you have bathers of the dead who prepare the body and often speak with the deceased in order to learn its final wishes and help it finish unfinished business. And this is like a specifically spiritually designated person or will it be someone from the family? They are designated, but they're from the community. Okay. There is a process, the Dasuna, which removes that protective lowest spirit. So it's kind of more like freeing because it's still in your head after you die. Yeah, you would need to be freed from that. That would be a terrible fate for that piece of that loa to be right. stuck in a... Right, and people an say that whenever the loa leaves the body, then the body will sometimes move 
and there are many reports in the morgue of bodies sitting up or coming off their gurneys. Now another process is the desonin, which frees the guobanage. And to do that, you do your libations to the cardinal points to purify. You'll shake your song like candles. The name of the deceased is whispered into the ugan's ear, while his assistants perform the animal sacrifice and trace the veves consecrated to the dead. And the ugan can be possessed by the spirit. And this is a time where you can kind of get some information about the family and some mm. divination on what might happen. It's serious energy. Now, on the wall near the gates of the main cemetery of Port-au-Prince is a Victor Hugo quote. Hmm. It says, I say that the tomb that closes upon the dead opens the heavens, and that what we hear below take for the end is the beginning. It's perfect. So there's something about that quote. Like, I think it's an incredible piece of writing. And if that's like what you think of when you think of Victor Hugo, he's lived his life well. I remember getting my Bartlett's dictionary quotations and like flipping through it and seeing that the only entry for F. Scott Fitzgerald was her laughter sounded like bells on money. <laughs> and I was like, he's so much more than that. He's so much more than but that. But Victor Hugo, if that's what you get, if that's what's in Bartlett's for you, still well done. <laughs> so after you die, the Tibonage stays with the corpse for about nine days. And I'm hovering around until the ceremony on the ninth evening. At the end of the ceremony, the spirit fragment is permanently interred. If this is not done, it can wander the earth, causing problems to its relations. Mm -hmm. So it can be placed in a govi, which is a jar covered in necklaces. And this govi can kind of become a loa, and you you could put it in the temple and and feed it and praise it. Or it can be broken, and distributed over several crossroads to free the spirit. So there's a reintegration ritual of the soul with the community, where the Gobanage kind of goes off to that cosmic community, to the mm-hmm. Africa Gene, to become a Loa, and the Tibanage is later confined to the kingdom of the dead. Okay. So if you don't do this, the spirit can kind of hover around and cause a lot of problems. Because they're confused. Wouldn't you be? Yes. <laughs> Now, another thing that can happen, if you aren't very careful with your tibonage, is it can be stolen. I don't like the sound of that. That's why you might keep a piece of it in a peristyle to kind of keep it protected. Because of a bokar, a ugan that's going to do some not-so-nice <laughs> voodoo, is able to steal part of it, then they're able to create a zombie. So rights for the dead are incredibly important. Incredibly important. And so usually they bury the dead within 24 hours. Oh, wow. So sometimes a bokar, if they've given this person the zombie powder, will try to hasten the burial by spreading like foul-smelling things around the house to make them think the body is putrefying. Ah, uh, mean. <laughs> now, the bokar will go to the grave at night and lure the dead out with the bottle they have captured part of their tibonage in. Now, this can be stolen in that nine-day period or before, and you can actually keep just that part, and it can become a zombie astral, and just kind of, you can use it for, like, spirit magic. But if you want the whole kit and caboodle, if you want, like, to reanimate someone, you're going to have to do more than just keep a spirit in a bottle. No, you use that to call it from its grave. Okay. So the Bokhan will go with his assistants, the Lugarus. Wait, werewolves? That's what they're called. The Lugarus will exhume the body. They'll place him head down 
and start to rub the body vigorously. They'll make the dead swallow a potion of condor leaves soaked in alcohol or just breathe in the smoke of the leaves. Also spray the body with iced water and whip it to kind of wake him up. Mm-hmm. They'll close the jaw with a strip of cloth. Sometimes they'll tie the thumbs together or tie the knees together to make it harder for them to escape. Now the conductor will wrap him in a shroud and tie a rope around his waist and guide him to the Bokar's home. Now the Bokar is able to use the spirit fragment in the bottle to control the dead. Oh, it's like remote control? Yeah. I don't like any of this. <laughs> now he's removed quickly from the grave because they don't want him to completely die and pass through what's called Trails of Enchantment. So once he's completely zombified, he'll be put to work in fields or as a protector of a house, and they're usually placed far, far away from the family so that they're not able to be noticed. Mm-hmm. Well, know, yeah, that would be inconvenient. Other side of the island. They're fed bland food on banana leaves. The salt can wake a zombie. Right. But also, this is what was fed to the slaves. And how it was fed on the exactly. banana leaves. Okay. And so salt or alcohol could wake them. So they're never given any of that. So like, let's say that you're out one day going to the market and you accidentally bump into your zombie brother. So this happens. Okay. (laughs) So you take them immediately to an ugong where they'd be baptized. And this would allow kind of a rebirth and they would slowly try to draw that petit bonange back to the person. This happens very gradually. This sounds absolutely hellish. Oh, it is. It is without a doubt. Like, I know you said this really happens, but does this really happen? It really happens. How often? Not often. But this happens. Oh, yeah. How does this happen? (laughs) To be given this awful sentence, you have to really, really screw up. Okay. If a community has a problem with an individual, the secret societies or the kind of voodoo tribunal will judge them. And if they feel that they need to do something about it, if they are, quote, preventing society from living, then they will send people out at night to kidnap him and bring him in front of them or her. And they'll preach to him and they'll judge him and they'll do this seven times in some circumstances. And if he continues to resist, they may physically harm him to get him to, where they say, calm down. And if he continues, he will be sentenced to live a reduced life. This is so much worse than Little Bunny Fufu. Right. This is worse than death. Your petit bonange is removed. This is what makes you human, makes you an individual. It's kind of your soul. It's part of your soul. And so you still exist if it's removed, but you will no longer want to do evil. Or good or anything. So you'll no longer be a problem for society. Mm. So one case. This is like a spiritual lobotomy. You're right. It kind of is. I didn't like that either. So one case is of Clervius Narcisse. Now, he was found in a market in the northern part of the island several years after his death. Is this the Wade Davis case? It is. Okay. So after his father died, he was left a plot of land and wanted to sell it and move to the U.S. The family tried to convince him not to. It was providing sustenance for the whole family. If he were to do that, a lot of people would possibly starve. So they went to the Secret Society for help, and they brought him in, and he refused and refused and refused. And that's when he was given the sentence. He remained a zombie for years until Wade Davis and Max Beauvoir disturbed him and began to slowly come out of his state. He even took them to his empty vault and showed them a scar on his cheek where a coffin nail had scratched him. Somebody bumped into him at a market and recognized him. And usually a family member. And 
then he was drawn out of this living death gradually. Gradually. And so in order to become a zombie, you know, they're using a lot of things. You're using a very physical aspect. They're given this kind of powder. This is the, the zombie powder that kind of has to be given before death. Yes. Okay. And then they're also given substances after their death. And then you also get the spiritual aspects. So we mentioned Wade Davis. And so in the 80s, he published a book called The Rainbow and the Serpent, detailing an ethnobotanist adventures into Haiti to discover the true cause of zombification. But the thing is, he actually did it. Kind of. So he had the help of Max Beauvoir, who was an Ogun, and a Haitian. He's not just an Ogun. He was also a biochemist with training at City College of New York and the Sorbonne, to name a few. Cool. For years, he had been Ati, a high-level keeper of voodoo traditions, and he teamed up with Wade Davis and his daughter to collect the different zombie powders to test to see if there's kind of anything to it. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure people had written for years, like, it's just psychosomatic if it exists at all. Right, exactly. We're back to folklore journal. If it exists, it's just crazy. And so once they took all of the samples back and analyzed them, they found five toxic elements contained within the different samples that matched up. There really was something biochemical there. Yeah, and so focus fell on one specific toxin from the fufu fish. Sounds fancy. Well, it, it can be fancy because it's the fugu in Japan. Oh, okay. This is a puffer fish. A poisonous puffer fish. And this is the sushi that people insist on eating because it's a thing. Yeah, and people die every year. Right. It's like incredibly expensive and has to be prepared exactly right or you die. Yes. And so people die every year. <laughs> and so it contains tetrodotoxin. And this is a toxin that can cause paresthesias, which mm-hmm. is like tingling. Like think of whenever your foot's asleep. And that's supposedly what you feel when you eat fugu because mm. somebody prepares it right. leaves just a touch of poison. Now, as you get to higher doses or longer exposure to them, you start seeing other symptoms. Like? You get just like a little nausea or vomiting. And then a little more, you might get some troubles with coordination. When you get higher doses, you can get some paralysis. Mm -hmm. You might go into a coma. You might become hypotensive, so low blood pressure. Your heart rate might slow. You can have hypothermia, so your temperature goes down. And you can have some dysrhythmias of your heart. So what you're saying is it can make you look like a dead person. It can make you look like a dead person. I see how that would come in handy for making a zombie. Now, they also add other elements into it. You get things like bone dust from humans, millipedes, tarantulas, root seeds, or other toxic plants as well. So one case described by a gynecologist who just had a nasty divorce and his mother-in-law went to a bokar. Is this a Kathy comic? Yikes. No. <laughs> um, I thought I saw it pinned on someone's refrigerator in the late 90s. It's similar. So his mother-in-law began to slowly give him a dose of the zombie potion. And it was embedded into his chair. What was? The zombie potion. She hired somebody to go and put a little bit I was going to say, on. he didn't yeah. notice his ex-mother-in-law sneaking to his chair. No, she was crafty, that yep. mother-in-law. Yeah. yeah, scary, right? And so she would send her little mysterious helper every day to go put just a, a tiny bit of zombie poison 
on the gynecologist ex-husband's chair. Yes. Kathy goes to hell. So he had this chronic, slow, insidious poisoning. He described this initial sensation as kind of euphoric, and then a sort of absence. And one morning he felt as if he was going to die, but a quiet death that carries one away. I mean, it sounds like he's almost folding in on himself, if that makes sense. Like, it sounds like you just, your internal life almost gets smaller and smaller and smaller. It kind of does, exactly as it's described from a spiritual sense. And his brother immediately, after hearing this, took him to an Ugan, who began to treat him as the gynecologist fell into a coma. Oh, he went. He went. Right, but they were able to bring him to someone to help him. And he did survive, but he continues to have neurological issues, along with difficulty in decision-making. He kind of just does what he's told. And he describes an incident where the tip of his tongue became necrotic, and he pulled it from his mouth with his fingers, a filthy, vile, stinking rot. Oh my god, that's the most alarming thing I've ever heard in my life. Okay, so first of all, I have my hand raised. Uh, I need to be called upon, please. Yes, ma'am. What lasting damage was done, do you know? Like, why was he so suggestible? Well, it's hard to say. Do you think it's psychosomatic? I think there are a lot of components to it. Okay. So there's definitely our physical aspect. We have a poison that is given, the Tetrata toxin, very commonly found in zombie powders. Fufu fish poison. Yes. Okay. I was listening. So along with drugs, we've talked about this before in our LSD episode, you have set and setting. Your kind of psychoactive drugs have a different effect depending on your mindset. And where you are and like what's going on. Yeah, it's how you can have a really bad trip. Okay. And why people that are going to trip, you know, make sure they have the right setting and the right music and they're in a safe, happy place. Or you see spiders crawling out of your friend's eyes. Exactly. Okay, so if we get how that could have affected him initially. Obviously, he's ingesting this drug, especially if it's like coming to a head. He happens to fall into a coma around the time that it's discovered. You know, like it could be triggered, right? So it's really there. It really does exist. It's really there. It really has a physical effect. But, you know, it could be triggered or set off or exasperated by setting. Do you think that it really did some damage and then that still plays a part in the yes yes there's definitely i think some long-lasting neurological damage of course there are no great human studies on long-term poisoning with fufu fish poison with tetratotoxin oh my god they couldn't get a bunch of college sophomores to sign up for that this is not the 60s unfortunately (laughs) but wade davis put forward that set and setting idea it's like maybe that has something to do with it but the thing is set and setting is Related to psychoactive drugs, and tetratotoxin is not LSD. It is not a hallucinogenic. Okay. It's a neurological toxin. But, my dear Samantha, I've done some further research. Oh, dear. So there are who some... Did you, who did you go to? <laughs> I'm not telling you. What they give you? Not telling How you. How much are you giving me? Just a little bit at a time. You guys have got like seven episodes left. <laughs> They're going to get weirder and weirder promise so there are some other compounds that are used in the poisons in the zombie powders and in the ceremonies so one common component that's found in the zombie powders is a toxin from a boga toad is that actually a toad yeah it's a cane toad 
What's a cane toad? So have you seen like the South Park episode or the comic Chew where they lick the toads and they get high? I have seen the comic Chew and it is fantastic. Yes. Yeah, All of it. Now go. Incidentally, the artist is from Louisiana. He is. Rob Guillory. So these are psychoactive poisons. And you on can, the toads. Yeah, and you can trip on them. And they're even Can you really lick the toad? Yeah. Do people really lick the toad? They do. What happens to them? They trip. They like trip mushrooms. Balls. Yeah. Really? You read me. Are you sixteen? Maybe. Stop it. So in voodoo, how they get this poison is they place one of these cane toads with a garter snake, quote, until he bursts with rage. So once it's dead, the venom is removed and mixed with the other toxins. So this bofotoxin from a cane toad is very hallucinogenic. And so you do get that set and setting along with that. Where do they place the toad with the garter snake? Where are they? Like in a, a box or something. This is the most <laughs> fucked up version of Schrodinger's cat that I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> okay, and then the frog like literally like explodes? No, it like emits the toxin. Okay, okay, okay. So another thing that's used that I mentioned earlier is the concombre zombie, which is the leaves they give them after mm. they, you know, take them out of the grave. They give them the leaves soaked in alcohol or they, they can breathe in the smoke. Right. So this is gypsum weed or devil's snare. That sounds positively Macbethy. Well, it's part of the nightshade family. Oh, well that, yeah. And it's a powerful hallucinogenic and deliriant. It can be fatally toxic, but mixing this along with alcohol can make someone that's just been pulled out of a grave hallucinate and very passive. Okay, so first of all, being pulled out of a grave, traumatic. Yes, no, definitely. Traumatic, like that's going to leave its own psychological imprint, that... And then you've got neurological damage from being poisoned with foo-foo fish. Yep. And then you've got toads blowed. Mm-hmm. So you're hallucinating or have hallucinated as you were exposed to the zombie powder. And then you have your passive leaf stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your gypsum weed. So you have all of this producing real physical effects on the body. And so there's another element, too, is that psycho-spiritual element. So... Being that voodoo is widely believed in Haiti, and if you are someone that ascribes to it, then experiencing these true neurological symptoms, along with all of the ceremony that goes along with it, can push you into believing that you are a zombie. So in the documented cases do, where they're like off working on the other side of the island, do they get repeat exposure to this stuff? Not that I read anywhere. So that's where the psychological element comes in, but also the long lasting neurological effects. So there are some other psychological disorders that can cause similar symptoms. Um, one being Cotard's disease. Is that real? It is real. It was identified by Jules Cotard in 1880. He was a French neurologist. And he had a female patient that came in to him convinced that she did not have a brain, nerves, chest, stomach, intestines, and felt that she was nothing more than a decomposing body. She did not believe in God or Satan and had no will to live or eat. And she died shortly after of cachexia. Starvation? Yeah. Well, he didn't do much to treat her, did he? It gets to be named after him? 
Yeah, of course. But he didn't fix it. Doesn't mean anything. You should have fixed it. There should be a rule. You have to fix it. We'd have to rename everything. Oh, well. So one more recent case involved a man named Graham Harrison, and he tried to commit suicide by electrocution in the bathtub. Oh, man. That makes me think of Groundhog Day. (laughs) Now, he woke in the hospital convinced that he was brain dead, and no one could convince him otherwise. And from then on, he spent his days roaming cemeteries, quote, in order to get closer to death. How do they know he wasn't brain dead? Because he was moving and talking. How do they know he wasn't just a really, really well-developed ghost? This is why you don't have diseases named after you. Oh, just wait. (laughs) It's not going to be anything good. So another patient in Haiti, Adeline D., was discovered by her sister, who was a nun, by chance a year after her death. Her sister was a sister? Her sister was a sister. Okay. Now she was ragged thin. Her hair was shaven. And she was really kind of out of it. Her sister brought her to the church. They tried an exorcism, which failed. Naturally. And so she just kind of subsisted by basket weaving. So by 2013, she was admitted to the psychiatric center. Would she eat and stuff? Like she had normal hunger and thirst and... Like... Very little. Oh, okay. Very little. In her room, there were several bottles which she would salivate into. Mm. On her walls are drawn the Veda of Baron Samdi and Dame Brigitte. Also, there are drawings of phalluses and knives. And now whenever asked why she would draw these, she recounted that in her time underground, she was invited to dinner with the Loas and was taught these symbols. She would also draw a four-story building with a kitchen and children. Now, these drawings of children did not have arms or ears. Now, important caveat, when she drew herself... She did have these features. Are you sure this is real? Oh, yeah. And so it turns out that when she was a zombie, she took care of two children in a home, Melita and Melissa, and they called her T-Mommy, and the children were not allowed to touch her. And I'm sure they didn't listen to her either. I'm sure they didn't. So on medical exam and testing, she was found to have frontoparietal atrophy, and on EEG, they found that she had numerous epileptic seizures she was just constantly having these mild seizures in her brain so her behavior could be caused by this chronic psychosis of an untreated epileptic so it's hard to say if this was a progressive disease she already had or if it was induced by the neurotoxins that would be given to her in a zombie powder so the reason that we assume that she did go undergo some kind of ritual is because she died Mm-hmm. Because her sister knows that she died. Exactly. So she did, something was done to her. Most likely. Now, <laughs> she has not kind of come out of it all the way. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say, you know, these people that have come all the way out of it can tell you, you know, kind of what happened uh-huh. in, in vague details. But she's still very aphasic, like she doesn't speak much. And she's having these serious neurological problems, which the neuroepileptics, like the seizure medicine, is not really helping a good bocar that's or a bad one horrible it's terrifying so you can definitely see there's a psychological element that is interpreted through the cultural traditions which you know we've talked about that in previous episodes before such as like the angel episode Mm -hmm. because whenever you start to see things or hear things or feel things or have these paranoid delusions it'll be interpreted through your 
sociocultural background. So it'll be demons. It'll be angels. It was, it'll be, I'm Jesus, or I'm Elvis. Or I'm Superman. Or I'm a zombie. Now, and if you ask an Ungan about this, they will deny, deny that they have ever known anybody that's ever turned anyone into a zombie. It's very secretive. But I find it so interesting because there is a true neurological component to it that's filtered through all this history and all these stories and all this psychological manipulation. And that's how you get a zombie. So that's like the micro level of how someone can be affected by a very deeply entrenched cultural tradition. Right. I may have for you the macro. Okay. Let's talk about Papa Doc. Is he another Loa we didn't talk about? No, he is mm. not a Loa. <laughs> not even a bad Loa. He probably is a Loa. I don't know. It's a complicated question, Jacob. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. So his name was Francois Duvalier, and he was a doctor, a physician, before he became dear leader. A murderous dictator. A murderous dictator. Our favorite kind of dictator. In 1957, he took power in Haiti, and he employed a band of enforcers known as the Tonton Makout. What's that? Well, it's um, it's kind of like the name of their version of El Hombre de Saco, or yes. like their boogeyman. Right. And so they would wear mirrored sunglasses, t-shirts, large straw hats, sometimes denim shirts, and carry machetes. Interesting. So this was his militia, his police force uh this is his like off the books police force like he of course had his military guard and his official state police etc but these were the men on the ground we'll get back to their hijinks later but right now we need to talk about how he introduced himself to haitian society once assuming power he decided that voodoo should be the state religion okay kicked a bunch of other religious officials out shooed them if you will. He may or may not have mentioned to the public that he was um, Buon Samdi. Oh, okay. So did he just say he was? No, he kind of dressed like him, too. Okay, so he took on the physical aspects as well. Yeah, he would wear like top hats and tailcoats, and he would wear the sunglasses and just kind of went with it. Leaned yeah. in. He leaned in. Uh, I think that's not what she meant. <laughs> and um, he would also demand that the skulls of those that had offended him, that had been put to death for one offense or another, be brought to his palace in Port-au-Prince. And he would also, if people were imprisoned for dissent, usually, he would torture them, and he would also have their blood harvested and sold to U.S. blood collection agencies for $22 a pint. Wow. He was farming people. Now, in addition, another moment in time that contributed to his fearsome reputation was when he had every black dog on the island executed. Any reason? Well, it was rumored that one of his political enemies had transformed into a black dog. Good reason. So that's just logic. Now, I told you we'd come back to the Tantamakut. It's estimated that during their, what will often be termed, reign of terror. Seems appropriate. About 600,000 people were killed. Holy shit. And they would sometimes display the heads of the people that they killed in the marketplace on spikes. And they collected, quote, unofficial taxes from businessmen and peasants. So protection money. They were kind of like a, a voodoo mafia. Mm-hmm. Kind of. Except 
officially sanctioned by the ruler of a country. At one point, there was a kidnapping attempt involving Papa Doc's children. Oh no, he's not going to take that well. No, he ordered 65 of his officers shot. Holy cow. And then one day, he became very paranoid and decided that some of his closest followers had been plotting against him. And he had 19 of them shot. And at one point, he even had the Lord's Prayer rewritten to begin our doc, who art in the National Palace. Oh my God. Hallowed be thy name. Wow, that's some syncretism. It's creative. It's like a Weird Al Yankovic feel-good number. If he killed thousands and thousands of people who beheaded them and claimed that he was a Loa. Basically. Okay. Yeah. A Loa of accordions. Well, we're not saying he's not, first of all. Look, your Loa is your own personal Loa. If you have a Weird Al Loa, more power to you. Please tell us all about it, and I want to see his veve. Oh, that sounded dirty. (laughs) It's the first time anyone's wanted to see Weird Al's veve. All right, back to the murderous dictator. I'm sorry. I'm trying to lighten it up a little, okay? Um, he also had people trucked into the Capitol to come and sing and dance and praise him in front of the National Palace. And he would often drive through the streets in his bulletproof Mercedes 600 limousine and scatter money out the window to people who could not otherwise get any money because of the way he had set up the economy. And so everyone would run out to see him. It was always so happy when they saw Papa Doc, and everyone loved him. See how much they love him? Don't they love him so much? Because he's giving them money to buy food. Right, and it might be as much as one could earn in a year, just out the window of a car. Now, in the 1960s, there were a series of guerrilla uprisings, and Papa Doc heard that one of the guerrilla leaders had been killed in a skirmish, and he had his head cut off and brought it to the palace and supposedly he used his occult powers to conjure information from the dead man really he interrogated the dead man's severed head and found out all about the guerrilla leader's plans from the dead man and some people said around this time he even took to personally torturing people in the basement of the palace it's also rumored that Lucknow Cambron, who was the head of the Tantan Makut during the 60s and 70s, would send corpses to U.S. medical schools in order to receive payment so that medical students could learn how to doctor humans. Wow. And this individual was called the Vampire of the Caribbean because everyone needs a cool nickname. Now, it was also alleged that members of the squad were known voodoo practitioners, and they used this perceived connection with otherworldly powers to remain invulnerable and maintain power. Now, after Papa Doc died in 1971, his son, Baby Doc, Baby Doc took over, and they stayed in power until 1986. Now, Baby Doc was not much better than his father. But he just didn't have the cachet. He didn't. He no would charisma. wear furs. Mm-hmm. He wore a lot of fur, and he would demand that the air conditioners at the palace be kept super cold. So he could wear his furs indoors. And if someone forgot to do it, he would threaten to shoot them. But that's pretty much the coolest thing about him. (laughs) And by cool, I mean vile and awful. But he did eventually flee the country and he went to France. Yeah, and then he decided he was going to come back to Haiti. And he was going to run as president. And there was a certain amount of nostalgia that was kind of shocking. It's like people forgot the atrocities that were committed by this regime so quickly. He was quickly... Sentenced, and he was arrested for a short period of time, but he never went to trial, and he died of a heart attack. Or did he? Did he? So, 
the Christian Science Monitor kind of helps sum this up very well, kind of what the connection between Papa Doc, his progeny, Haiti, and voodoo meant at this particular moment in history. They, they postulate that employing voodoo leaders was an integral method to overseeing the torture and murder of political opponents and robbing public funds. Biographer Elizabeth Abbott writes in Foreign Policy, Duvalier's genius lay in how he designed the hierarchical structure and chose their usually humble social origins and included priests, Vodun and Christian, and rural section chiefs who ruled the fiefdoms with an iron fist and reported personally to him about any subversive activity or even thought. So it was a very intentional kind of co-optive culture. Oh, definitely. He drew on every negative thought that had ever been thought about voodoo. And every fear that people really did entertain who had grown up in this practice. And it said, Duvalier left behind Duvalierism, a system of government too profoundly entrenched to truly eradicate. She writes, describing a system of kleptomania, unchecked environmental degradation, and exploitation of poverty. By the time he was forced to flee, in 1986, this is Baby Doc, under U.S. pressure amid uprisings throughout Haiti, Jean-Claude's Duvalierism had bankrupted the Haitian state and enshrined corruption and incompetence in the government and civil service. And so you do see this case of someone on the inside taking advantage of this culture that has been used as a source of power and as a source of community and twisting it. Right. It's like they created a system of privation that was so acute and so complete that the only thing people had left were their beliefs, and then they turned their beliefs against them. It is truly monstrous because it's a kind of predatory practice that hits humanity at every level. I mean, they're under bodily threat. They're under economic threat. They're under spiritual threat. Everything hurts. And you really see that negative representation of voodoo come out during the Haitian earthquake, which happened on January 12th of 2010, where 1 million people lost their homes. 60,000 were displaced just last year, and an estimated death totals reaching 316,000. It's truly apocalyptic. So barely 18 hours after the earthquake, the Reverend Pat Robinson... Who needs to shut the fuck up about everything? <laughs> Had a nice televised discourse on the nation's history, theology, and destiny, saying that Haiti had suffered because its rebellious slaves swore a pact with the devil to overthrow the French two centuries ago, and ever since, they have been cursed by one thing or another. You saw broadcasts and blogs depicting voodoo as the source of Haiti's poverty and political instability. Not because of divine punishment, mind you, but because voodoo supposedly is fatalistic and primitive by nature. Now, Diane Winston, a professor of religion at USC, said the media has reported a lot about voodoo, but not much of it very insightful or intelligent. <laughs> voodoo is one of those flashpoints for Americans because it's exotic, unknown, has strange connotations. It may be a matter of underlying racism because voodoo is African and Caribbean in its origin are because voodoo seems so different from Christianity that it's the perfect other. So you do see this continued misrepresentation of voodoo that's been present since the absolute beginning. Even good old Reverend Robertson brings up Bois Camin in his uh, 
insightful discourse. I just have to say, Pat Robertson, if you're right about hell, sir, I hope you like it warm because every time there's a natural disaster, I can, I've not over Katrina yet. Oh, right. But he's not the only one, is he? Oh, no. Oh, no. This has been a constant battle. Numerous Christian churches on Haiti are battling voodoo. You had 14 major campaigns against voodoo since 1904, with significant occurrences during the American occupation in 1915 and 1934, one right before Duvalier took over in the 60s, and then, of course, the ones we talked about. Now, after Duvalier was thrown, overthrown, um, there was a huge slaughter of voodoo practitioners as well. Now, in many of these cases, the Christian churches would have people feigning demonic possession in order to push their cause. And yeah, after Duvalier's departure, 1,700 initiates were lynched and burned. That's in 86? Yeah. So a tree planted by the slaves during the Buancamin ceremony reportedly on August 14th of 1791 was recently cut down by Christian fanatics and they even built a church over it to sanctify the ground. That's just hateful. It's hateful. Now, of course, during the time of crisis after the earthquake, you saw an uptick of zombies being reported in refugee camps mm-hmm. along with Lugaroos. According- Wait, like the assistance to the Bokar? Or the werewolves. Were- werewolves. Yes. Okay. Going one that was lynched and reported about in the news. Preachers claimed it was voodoo that brought cholera. It was the UN. Sorry. Sorry, guys. But there were witch hunts that followed this, with a dozen Ungans being put to death by a mob. In 2010? Yes, after the earthquake. I'm sorry, these things just sound like they should be happening in the 1700s. Or not at all. But interestingly, this demonization of voodoo that's always been present is just one more way it's kept alive because it grants it both this real existence and power. Now, one author on Haiti said, I would tell reporters to go into the shanties and find the local voodoo priest. Voodoo is a very close to the ground. It's a neighborhood-to-neighborhood, courtyard kind of religion, and one where you support each other in times of need. Now, there's this fantastic little mini-doc directed by Lucy Walker about Priestess Mambo Katie. And now she was initially displaced after the earthquake, but returned home to Haiti, saying, I returned to my homeland because my cultural roots were calling out to me and the spirits were calling me to do my service and my work. As she tried to enter the refugee camp, she's met with some resistance. But she says, when you are part of voodoo, you are a part of the community. You must always be able to help. Mamo Katie gave many people food, a place to live, or even just clean up and get fresh clothes. She's helping some of the people she's taken in go back to school. She says, I accept everyone. When they're at my house, they feel protected. We will not disrespect them. Their pain is my pain, and I must thank Voodoo for that. She holds ceremonies celebrating the dead, celebrating the lost loved ones, including those recently deceased in the earthquake. She said, as a Voodoo song, I am always there for everyone. Even when their problems seem overwhelming, I always let them know that one day, things will change. There's a proverb that says, as long as there is life, there is hope. And I have to give them hope, because hope gives them life. I think from the beginning that outsiders have been so afraid of the power of Vodun, because the thing it ultimately represents is hope. 
in the face of impossible odds, in the face of unfathomable hardship, it's a reason to dance. It binds people to something so much greater than physical memory. It is a culture all its own. It's something that gave people that were powerless power. Something that helped them reach further beyond something as terrible as enslavement. A fear of voodoo is ultimately a fear of human resilience. And I think the innate knowledge that all of us have that you can't bend people to your will. You might think that people are afraid because they don't understand what it is, but maybe they're afraid because they do. It's hope, it's resilience, it's community and culture, spirit and bonds that can't be broken. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. And next week, we'll be talking about how Voodoo moved to the swamps and cities of South Louisiana. And no story of South Louisiana voodoo would be complete without a look at Voodoo Queen Marie Laveau.